with my app or my remote control, whatever, however the hell you're going to do this, yep. I could have Floyd Mayweather right here and Logan Paul right here, and I could stand right here and watch it from that angle or stand right here or move it around like this. Yep, you could blow it up and make it the size of your... You could make them life-size and walk in the middle of the boxing ring. You um, have the compression power to do this right now. Yeah. Are you fucking with me? <laughs> no. What's cooking, everybody? We're going to do a little bit of a different intro today. Okay? So I want you to picture yourself watching a football game on TV. Now, there are a lot of games every weekend, but for the sake of this example, let's just say you're watching a game on, I don't know, February 4th, 2018. And you're watching, you're watching Super Bowl 52. That's, that's when Super Bowl 52 was. I almost forgot about that. If you don't remember what happened in the game that was Super Bowl 52, though, that was when the Philadelphia Eagles handily, handily, defeated the New England Patriots by a score of 41-33. to The notoriously cheating New England Patriots by a score of 41-33. to Now, if you're like most Americans... There's nothing more you love to see than the Patriots lose. And there's nothing more you love to see than whoever's playing them win. So when the Philadelphia Eagles won the game, you probably would have liked to go on the field with them and celebrate and enjoy as the confetti fell down and the Patriots wallowed in their sorrows. But the game's on TV. It's in 2D. It's on a screen. It's something you turn on and you turn off. You can pause it. It's not really, really there. So you can't really go on the field and enjoy the fruits of that victory. Now imagine your favorite TV show. And let's just say you're a fan of Sex in the City. I don't know. Some people are. And let's say you're watching an episode where Carrie's going on and on about how Samantha's brought home her fifth guy this week. It's only Wednesday. That's not even mathematically plausible. This is the fourth week in a row it's happened. And you know what? She's just trying to rebound off Richard and get attention to herself. And everyone else is pissed off. So Carrie's got this great rant going about it. You're watching this. And it's on TV. It's 2D. You can turn it off. You can pause it. She's not really there with you. You feel like she is. You feel like you're friends with Carrie Bradshaw. But again, she's behind the screen. Imagine if she wasn't. I'm joined in the bunker today by Anthony Fenyu. And Anthony Fenyu is the guy who's going to help make it a reality for those situations to be right there in your living room with you. No, they're not, they're not going to be in there physically with you officially. But Anthony Fenyu is the CEO of a company called Soar, which you probably haven't heard of, but you're going to know about pretty soon. Because Soar, among other things produces holograms unbelievable holograms and when i tell you these things have incredible capabilities anthony fenn you and his company want to put your football games and your tv shows on your table or sitting on your couch depending on which is which and let me tell you something it's some wild wild shit i really enjoyed talking with this guy He's an absolute genius. It's like watching an artist paint their view of the world, and in this case, he's a tech guy, so it was pretty cool. Anyway, if you're not subscribed, please subscribe. We are on YouTube, where we got clips coming every day. We are on Apple Podcasts, 
Spotify, and Google Podcasts. And to everyone who's been leaving reviews on Apple Podcasts, I really, really appreciate you. That's amazing. It's, it's, it's incredible to see that, that. That feedback from you guys is, is awesome. So thank you. Thank you very much. And enjoy this episode. So, that said, you know what it is. I'm Julian Dory, and this is Trent This is one of the great questions in our culture. Where is the new understands this, but few seem to do it. If you don't like the status quo, start asking questions. When we talked on the phone last week, I guess, you mentioned to me that the 2010s, we've obviously come away with this concept that it was all about mobile. And I mean, it's, it's the iPhone at the center of all of it. And then the whole ecosystem that's come out of that. And that's We've accepted that probably for the last five, six, seven years. But you also said that that's not stopping, meaning this next decade, 2020 into 2030, is still going to be defined by the mobile movement. However, you see a second component coming into that as its own new space that's really going to reset, no pun intended here, our reality. What is that? Yeah, I think that's spatial. So... it's actually something Steve Case touches on this um, in, I, f- I forget the name of his book, but um, his most recent book, he talks about this kind of shift from personal computing to mobile. Um, and then a, a lot of those signs that you see that he talks about um, are the same kinds of things that we're seeing on spatial, um, like the access to data being ubiquitous. When um, you say spatial, by the way, yeah. just to fully define that, are you yep. talking about VR, AR, like all the above? Yeah, or? yeah. So, so to me, spatial, um, s- spatial is like the combination of all. So augmented, uh, virtual, and mixed reality. Wow. Um, and and like I think the biggest innovation from like a spatial computing perspective is the augmented or mixed reality glasses like the way to view 3d content in our natural environment i think that is the next uh generation of computing is that the stuff that like google's talking about giving you literally like the glasses we wear and it'll be i think i saw this they're saying it'll replace the phone is that yeah the same thing yeah i I think it's it's going to be quite a bit before it replaces the phone but i think it will um and and it's we're ultimately putting the compute device out of our hands, and uh, it, it's something that I can use throughout my daily life. Um, kind of like how a heads-up display in a car um, takes some of the controls away from uh, a device in front of you or, or a center console or something like that, um, e- even a steering wheel, mm-hmm. um, and, and puts them in front of you, and you can use some sort of voice uh, tech to mm. control it. I think that's a lot of what we'll see in a pair of glasses. I know Facebook's doing a lot there too. I think they just partnered with Ray-Ban, I want to say. Um, <laughs> that's or scary. Luxottica, one of the I, th- yeah. I think Luxottica owns Ray-Ban. Um, but yeah, the, the idea that a pair of glasses that look as good as your Ray-Bans 
can be like your main compute device. I think it's pretty crazy. And a lot of it will be where you understand what's going on, but other people can't see it. It's not like the computer screen's flashing in, in front of your face so that everyone's like, oh, he's using it right now. Yeah. It's more or less like it's it's literally on the inside and, and you're integrated with it. Yep. Yeah, and, and I think there's – so you can go two ways with this too. I think there's also content that lives – and, and there are a lot of companies, one in particular called Niantic, um, is doing a lot of work in, in like the mapping the world in 3D, so mm. to speak. But um, the the idea at a high level is that if we all have access to the same 3D map in real time, we can interact with content in the same location at the same time the same way. So mm. it, it would essentially be like if I'm looking through my pair of glasses – um, and you are looking through your pair of glasses at the street in front of both of us at the same time, you can see the same piece of content interact with both of us the same way. Um, does that make sense? I, I want to know if I understood that correctly. You're, <laughs> you're already blowing my mind a little bit. So if I'm in California and you're in New Jersey and I'm staring at the street in front of me, so street X, and you're staring at the street in front of you in New Jersey, street Y, you're saying that even though those are separate streets, whatever experience you would put on there, we would both see the same thing in front of us. Yeah, so, so you can do that, or you can also do same exact location. Like it can oh. be mapped to a map, right? So, so think about just oh something God. as simple as advertising. Like right now, I need to put a billboard physically in one location, I can now make that billboard digital, get the same result uh, from from an advertiser's like engagement perspective, um, but not require any of the physical infrastructure. Wow. There was a company, I cannot remember the name. I was just trying to think of it and I can't remember it, so I'm not going to try. But a couple years ago when Pokemon Go was really going, they seized on it, and I think they were like a little bit of a shot in the pan. I'm, I'm not sure. But they were talking about literally that. And they're saying, imagine you're just wherever you are. You're sitting at your desk. You're out in the hallway. You're in your bed. And you're like, all right, I want to go to the mall. And it's not just like you go on the phone, go to your mall. Nope. Like you literally have the glasses, and you would see – you use the billboard examples. They're like – will literally have stores that you walk into. Yep. So now you think about the speed that this can happen at, meaning right now when people are doing placed advertisements online, that all happens inside of nanoseconds based on data. Now they're actually doing it, but instead of dropping a, ba a banner ad, they're dropping a location, and you just have a pop-up store in front of you. That is fucking wild. Yeah. It also lets me super target if I'm yeah. an advertiser, which I know people have varying... Uh, opinions on, but um, all in all, like I, I won't be served with an ad even in my actual environment um, that I don't want to see. Um, it'll all be tailored, and therefore the advertisers getting more value. They're only going to put what they think you're going to buy in front of you. If if they know you are not in the market for a car, why would I put ten car advertisements in front of you? Right? Yeah. So you can use that same billboard for um, 10 different advertisements of 10 different customer segments. And every time somebody looks at that billboard, they could be seeing a different thing that is like valuable to them and a higher, um, a, a higher conversion rate um, to the advertiser. 
All right, actually, I want to make sure I understand this then. Are you saying, is that example you're using where you're talking about there is literally a physical billboard outside from driving my car, but because I'm wearing my glasses in my car and, and I want to buy a Lexus, I see a Lexus when I pass it, and the car behind me wearing their glasses, when they pass it, they want to buy a Nissan, they see a Nissan. Yep. Got it. So you're yep. even talking about, wow, it's not even just integrating spatial objects right there that aren't actually physically there but we just see them when we interact but you're talking about taking physical objects and suddenly saying like all right we're gonna put that on it down to you know someone posts a poster of like missing cat if someone else wants to put their missing dog on there they could yeah exactly it's and and like based on the area that the person lives in uh, now this is a little bit scary, but like <laughs> if the people driving by live nowhere near where that dog was lost, the odds of them successfully finding that dog are much lower. So <laughs> I would want to show the missing dog ad to the people that live closest to where that dog was lost. Yeah. So I can do that in real time. It, it, it is the full convergence of physical and digital worlds. How close are we to this? Um, within the next five to 10 years. Now, when you say within the next five to 10 years, because that can mean two different things. I'm not saying it does, but it can mean A, yes, it's going to take that long to bring it public and also mean B, we have it right now. We're just figuring out how to message this to people. So, so the, there are still some science and technology challenges in doing some things like this. Um, even down to like the, the field of view of, of like a, uh, an AR headset right now, Mm. um, like, like a pair of augmented reality or mixed reality glasses, has a, a pretty narrow field of view, um, and, and that is a technical challenge. Will we overcome that in the next five years? Yeah, definitely. When you say field of view again, I'm blanking. I, I should know what that is. Um, basically, like like the so when you look through a pair of AR or XR glasses, mm-hmm. um, pull that mic in just a bit. So, yeah, there, yeah, it's it's almost like there's um, ki- kind of like a window within the glasses that you can see things. Mm. Um, and, um, yeah, it's, it's similar to like a, uh, the field of view of, of like a camera lens, right? Like I can Mm. only see so wide, I can only see so tall. So digital content in the AR glasses today only exists in like a, a narrower portion of the, um, of your eyes total field of view. So something like 40% or something like that, right? 40 to 60%. It's the same concept as like on my actual camcorders, the size of the image I can get compared to my iPhone, significantly bigger. Yeah, yeah. That's all yeah, field exactly. of view. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So so like there are, I guess to circle back, like the, there are a lot of challenges. I think we can overcome them pretty quickly. Um, and then it's the messaging and adoption. Yeah. The, the biggest challenge to the, the whole picture is like the adoption. I think there's, especially when you look at like the the convergence of physical and digital, um, there's there's a certain level of comfortability required from like the general public, mm-hmm. um, and and I think like data privacy and some things like that are going to be the forefront. Um, let me ask it, Let me ask about that actually. Yeah. Because, in a lot of ways, we don't have data privacy right now. And it's something I think about a lot, and I hope more people are starting to think about it because it's 
we basically through the social apps, through Google, through all these major companies, we give them everything we do down to where we go and, and what the course of our day is. How much different would it even need to be though to do something like this from a data perspective because we already have location tracking. We already have all these things like you literally have companies that use beacons to track how close your car is so that their app can send you a push notification. I mean, it seems like the from my perspective, it seems like the big hurdle here would be to figuring out, okay, the adoption of like people wearing a physical thing versus like, all right, we're, we're asking them to give more data, but it seems like there is more to it. I think there's, um, there's not a hard line on what data is private um, and should be owned by the individual and what is not. So, so like a good, a good thing to think about is like Snapchat, right? Like, like when you open the camera and you're using Snapchat, um, they're collecting like a 3D map of the space around you, right? So like if I'm using an AR, like the dancing hot dog, <laughs> when I go to place that dancing hot dog on the table in front of me, like they're creating a 3D map of the of the room, right? So like there is a 3D map of the inside of my house that is now uh, stored by Snapchat. Um, like th that, I think, is a gray area. I don't think a lot of people understand it either. Um, but that's a challenge. You also need those maps uh, from from like a public perspective to be able to do a lot of these. Um, like location-based things. So if, if I want true um, convergence of physical and digital, I need a map, a 3D map of the world. Um, and, and how much of that should be owned by the individual? Yeah. I mean, and it's that's a little bit of a hot-button yeah. topic just because of the fact that everyone's at home right now with this whole pandemic going on and there is probably the biggest spike in conspiracy theorism of all time just you know people got time on their hands there's crazy shit going on and and they're trying to come to conclusions and one of the things that a lot of people have been looking at and passing around on every i've seen it on every single platform is some of the stuff from the world economic forum and there's the famous title that says like the year is 2030 uh, you live in this city you have no privacy you own nothing and you'll be happy and when you first see that, you're like, okay, this is probably taking it out of context. But then you go and you read that article. Uh, have you read that? I have not. Okay. You're not missing much. It's, it's written by some chick in, from Denmark or something. I don't know what the fuck she does. But she describes that in – a, and she's associated with the World Economic Forum, she describes it in a frighteningly nonchalant way. And she talks about how the government has all of our data. They know everywhere we are. We don't need cars because we live in this utopia city. In fact, we don't even need to leave the city because no one has it like us. And we just use public transportation. Everything's free. And then there is literally a line in there where she says, you don't own any of your data. And you hope that it never gets used against you. Like, it's not, oh, it's never going to get used against you because that's the trade-off here. It's like, 
you hope it never gets used against you. So when people read that, because I don't know how many people actually went and read that article. No one does that. I mean, they just look at the meme and call it a day. But I'm reading that and I'm like, okay, this one's a little less conspiratorial. This this is a little crazy because this is someone in power saying this stuff and she's openly telling you that like, yeah, it's a shot, you know, it could be used against you. And so we're looking at this trade-off now to go to this space where, yes, do you want the utility and convenience you get from it? And of course, like I look at it, I'm like, hell yeah, sign me up. Like when I first hear about the technology, but the adoption battle is probably going to be tougher because people are going to be more on the lookout. Like, well, what's the, what's the bigger picture from the powers to be here? Yeah. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think it's a challenge, and, and there's like a. I th- I think one of the one of the core issues is that it's very difficult for the average person to understand exactly how that's working, mm. um, what data somebody has on you. Like like the biggest question that I would have is like, what do you actually have? And yeah. I think there's this like common misconception too that like the the only thing that somebody has on me is like the video that that I liked on TikTok. Or, or something like that. I, I think that's uh, it's it's a challenge, uh, especially with um, young people. Um, the the gap from like what is actually being collected um, and, and what I can learn from what I'm collecting to uh, what the average person thinks is being collected or or what the average person believes, uh, whether it's one of the large tech companies or the government um, actually has. I think there's that gap's probably pretty big. Yeah. And I I think the fear would be when you see it get, what's the word? When you see the data get attacked, like if you see hacks or you see big companies or the government who's supposed to be protecting data to use it for whatever it is they give us, and then suddenly it gets into the wrong hands or it's used for the wrong reasons. That's always the worst fear that people have. And then I guess Google just recently had a hack and some people were screaming like that was going to be horrible. doesn't seem that way, but it's in the back of people's minds. But you make a great point. People don't understand. I, I don't even pretend to understand beyond what I told you. Like I know yeah. it tracks my location. I let it. You know, I know it tracks what I like. I don't really get how deep that can go. I, I even think about it with TikTok because TikTok scares the shit out of me just because it's not – it's owned by a Chinese company and – their government can take whatever they want from those companies. And like my mind goes straight to, okay, we're taking videos around us of everything and uploading billions of videos a day as users. And that data has to be usable for some sort of like, what's the word? Literal database to be able to figure out things like geographic location and, and any types of things in surroundings that could make a country like ours vulnerable, you know, on yeah. some type of conflict. And the example I always give, because again, like I'm not like you, I, I don't know, you've forgotten more in the last five minutes than I know about this in my whole life. <laughs> but I do know that in 2001 or 2002, when we were going after Osama bin Laden, we were he was taking videos in caves like it was just his face and a cave behind him and i remember that the cia and the nsa whoever was all working on it 
they were measuring the elements based on that video. They were measuring the potential elements within the rock in the cave behind him and then using latitudes and longitudes to determine where that rock might be. And we almost got him as a result of that. And when you think about the power of computing back then, what they were working with, we now have significant more power in the palm of our hands today, yeah. 18, 19 years later. And so now I look at TikTok or any example, but TikTok's the one I'm pointing at. And I'm like, I wonder what they could get out of that. Yeah. The, the other thing is that um, what is public from a technology standpoint is at least a couple of years behind what is in research projects um, at any of the big companies or, or government. Um, so the capabilities are much stronger than you look at and publicly can, can understand. So, yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a big challenge. Um, one thing in particular, especially with spatial, I think one thing that's, that's going to be very helpful, um, is startups attacking the, um, kind of like the 3d mapping of the world and so some of these areas that are going to be a little bit more gray um, because a startup with good core principles and very transparent um, culture can navigate some of those gray areas much easier than a big tech company and i think that's what that's what will ultimately help spatial what happens if they get bought by a big tech company when the product's in series a yeah yeah <laughs> Same thing. Yeah. <laughs> then you the need problem. another startup or, yeah, you better be pretty comfortable with the company that, that acquired you. Um, I, I think that's th – there's actually like a conversation that's happening now around – just around ethics in acquisitions. Mm. Um, just like like I know just from some friends that have been looking at the M&A space or, or have been involved in the space recently. Um, there are questions even around like a, like a company like Facebook. Do you actually want to be acquired by Facebook? What do you? What is the goal? Where would you like your technology to live? Mm. They're going to give you uh, the the power to build it inside of Facebook if you're still early, or um, maybe it's something that integrates perfectly, um, or maybe they'll just crush you if you don't. Um, but there's the the ethical question that comes into it too. Yeah. Uh, that's a tough question. You're barking up the tree of like monopolies and yeah. what they have the power to do once they get the economy of scale. And it's an interesting it's an interesting argument to have because when you look at a Facebook, when you look at an Amazon, a Google, there's a reason these companies are who they are and there's a reason why – they're so convenient for us and we get so much value from them and it's natural to get pissed at them because they're big and powerful. It's what we do in society. But it's because they're monopolies. They have a monopoly on our attention or our use for something. Thanks. And they had to get there. They had to start as a startup one day and have nothing and then eventually get to that. But once they do, these companies are no longer content to continue to play in their sandbox. Google starts as a search company. By 06, they're the first companies to have a self-driving car. A lot of people don't know. I know you know that. But yeah. like – so I talk to so many people that are like, they might have a self-driving car now. I'm like, oh, no. bitch, they had that in 2006, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yep. And Amazon starts as a book company and then he scaled it 
very carefully for a long time and then just hit the red button and, you know, turn it into a cloud company, turned it into data repository, turned it into buying everything. Now they're doing pharmacies, they're doing space, all this stuff. And it's like all these monopolies, when they get to that size, they now have the ability to say, we want to go into this space. So instead of just investing the R&D into it, to your point, they go in and say, all right, who's doing something really cool there who we can give a big payday and bring them in here and just let them do their thing and do it under our logo now? Yeah, which which I think is uh, a double-sided uh, sword because you, you have on one end um, the ability to innovate at a pace that is um, much faster yeah. than if you were not a monopoly. Um, and, and I know Teal, this is like his uh, – kind of bread and butter it was zero to one to a t the, the entire book yeah. yeah um which is a fantastic book by the way you're a fan yeah huge fan um, it is a great book yeah and, and i think it's this uh, well a couple of things but one of them being um monopolies are actually um are actually better mm-hmm. um is like kind of the core premise and um the, the Companies in an area of great competition will, in turn, compete away all of the profit, mm-hmm. um, therefore stifling innovation and, and causing this kind of like uh, tumbling effect. Um, so so I, I think the analogy that he uses is um, like a restaurant um, is, is a horrible business. It's the idea that like you don't want to be the eighth um, – I forget, I forget how he tells this, so this is going to be off. But like the eighth Chinese food restaurant yes. in um, one niche area of San Francisco. Yes. Um, yeah, it, it's you are in a highly competitive space, and and the way to compete is usually price, and therefore you're diminishing um, the the potential scale. You're diminishing the the profits. Um, so the way to to break the cycle is to build a true monopoly. Um, and, and I know he talks about, this is actually something that we carried over into how we built um, my current business. But it, it usually we're, we're starts... Gonna talk, we're going to talk about that. Yeah. We're going to get there. It, it usually starts with, with like this uh, core innovation, like something that is orders of magnitude greater than what exists. Mm-hmm. And then it has the, the couple of key components, one of them being... Uh, network effects. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. Can you describe network effects for people, just so that we know? <laughs> network effects is tough to describe. Um, it, it's, it's kind of like... Um, it's kind of like describing viral growth. Like, mm-hmm. like how do you... How do you describe what makes something viral? Um, Eyeballs. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, the, like, the network effects is, like... Um, I guess a good way to explain it might be um, the the power of uh, one turns into two, the exponential growth that you get through um, network or or through uh, word of mouth. If I had been the only guy to go on to Facebook, yeah. Facebook would have never been Facebook. Yeah. There needed to be all my friends going on there too. Yeah. Like, and that's, I know I'm really dumbing it down and there's more to it, but at the highest level, just for people to understand what you're trying to get at here. That's the easiest way to look at the top level of it, I think. There, yeah. Clubhouse. Clubhouse is a yeah. great one. Yeah. Network effects were super strong because it was invite only. 
Yep. So what was the first thing that I wanted to do, knowing that I only had one invite, was tell all of my friends about it on Twitter. Yep. Um, and then dish out my one invite. Um, yeah. That, and it cr- creates this uh, just kind of like mushroom cloud. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Teal, his argument was you need that, but you also need a space where you can either vanquish all the competition because you're better or there's not too much competition where it's commoditized and you're competing on price. That was the full takeaway, if yeah. I remember, right? Yeah, and, and and I think when it comes to price too, it's um, you need to be able to achieve economies of scale. Yep. Um, yeah, which is something that like if you look at AWS – um, yeah, that's like two a T economies of scale. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so I think that's, um, I, f- I forget the four pillars, but, um, it, it's, it's something along those lines. It's a, a great innovation starting with something that is like orders of magnitude greater than what currently exists, um, to solve said problem. Then it's, um, network effects, economies of scale, um, and, these are kind of like the pillars to building a monopoly. I think I think there was an I don't know if it was one of the pillars, but it was like you have to be a little bit crazy or something like yeah. that. Which also makes sense, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like you got to think different, be. or like he was literally using the Steve Jobs or something. Yeah, yeah. Which which again, it 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 makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, I think I, I forget who it was. It might have been Jason Calacanis that interviewed him. I think it was at like Recode or, or TechCrunch or, or one of them. Um, and he interviewed Teal. This was, I think this was like pretty early in Jason Calacanis' days. But um, one of the questions was, who do you, of all the, because Teal was PayPal Mafia. Mm-hmm. So for anybody that doesn't know, PayPal Mafia is like the. the Who's who, man. Yeah. It, it's the group of um, Max Levchin, uh, Peter Teal, Elon Musk. Um, Reed Hoffman. R- yeah. Reed Hoffman, Roloff Bata. Um, I believe Chad Hurley. Um, we can YouTube. check that. That sounds familiar. Yeah. yeah. There, but anyway, there, there's this group of it was early PayPal employees and PayPal founders that went on to build um, ridiculous companies. Um, and so that was back in like 1999 or 2000, yeah. right? David Sachs. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it was, this Keith is Keith Rapos. Wait, Keith Voice was in there? Yeah. I didn't even know that. Yeah, and he's uh Yeah, he's huge. He's huge in the VC world. Yeah, he's he's making a lot of noise on Twitter right now. Yeah, he just moved to Miami, I think, right? Yep. Jeremy Stoppelman was Yelp. This was a who's who. Yeah. Uh, I'll put this link in the show notes so people can see, but yeah. you're not kidding. I mean, this was like Yeah. Yeah, and, and in in kind of like Silicon Valley history, there have only been a couple of like the uh, mafias, so to speak. Yeah. Um, yeah. What was the other one? The other big one? Um, I'm blanking out on that. There's, I, I, I think we'll see more too. By oh, the way. definitely. Yeah, definitely. I, I think like, like Airbnb is probably yep. a good one. We'll probably yep. see something come there. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not too sure. I, I know there are a few. Technically in a weird, <laughs> in a weird way, you're going to see that you're seeing that with Facebook just because uh not that they agreed or had a had a good parting, but Zuckerberg and the Winklevoss twins. Yeah. You know, it took them a while, but 
They're doing some shit right now, man. Yeah. That is, that's pretty nuts. It's a good comeback. Um, I think, um, what was, damn, this one's going to kill me. Mark Andreessen, Ben Horowitz. Um, crap, what was the name of that company? Um, Netscape? Maybe? I, that sounds familiar. I'll I'll check that. I Keep should, going. Uh, yeah, I feel but, like yeah. Uh, I should know that one. But um, yeah, there there have been a couple of like quote unquote mafias that still run um, a bunch of major companies today. A lot of the PayPal guys like it was Netscape. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So so like think about the companies that came out of PayPal. Like PayPal early employees or founders. It was Yelp, YouTube. Um, Tesla, yeah, Tesla, SpaceX, LinkedIn, um, Affirm is Max Levchin, mm-hmm. um, Square, maybe I can't remember. I um, don't know if Square was in. It, it might have been. I, there's a lot. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah, basically yeah. It's, like it's crazy. It's like yeah, yeah the, we we created Silicon Valley. We yep. just left here. That was it. And they were like, they were the precursor at PayPal, and PayPal's obviously still huge. But they were the precursor to perhaps, in a way, digital currency. They just didn't take it all the way. They didn't go to decentralized or anything like that. They integrated with institutions. But the idea behind it and quick settlement and quick payment, which now we see in stuff like Venmo as well. But they were the early like, all right, that's a little bit of a model for that. It's very cool. Yeah, it's um, it's, it's – Pretty crazy to see it too, because PayPal was, um, for for most of them, that was not their first business, um, but I think it was the quickest, because from from the X dot com, mm-hmm. Elon, uh, Teal, all of them, uh, kind of joining, and they um, hated each other to, before. Yeah, th- there was a little bit of uh, warfare there for a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Because that was a – X.com, I just want to have the context. X.com was competing – was the company called PayPal already and then X.com joined PayPal or was it – I don't think it was. I think it was something else. Got it. So they were and competing. They PayPal. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And that, so, so from when they did that to when they um, uh, sold and then IPO, it, mm-hmm. it was like a very quick period of time. Can't remember exactly. They basically how long it was, did it, it all. Fast. They basically did it all like mid tech bubble. Just yeah, like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And it good. was it, like that's a that's one hell of a whirlwind there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. And then uh, following, most of them dove right into other things. Um, I think that was there was a brief period there, and then Teal started Palantir. Mm-hmm. Yeah, among other things, I guess. Right. What, what's the name of his? Teal. Is it literally like Teal Capital or something like that? Yeah. So so he's got Teal Capital. Um, he's a partner at Founders Fund mm-hmm. um, with Simon Bannister and a bunch of them. Um, yeah. yeah. And then and, Musk is a – Yeah, he's – Musk is a machine. He's done quite a few things. Yeah. He's, he's amazing, man. Yeah. He just – I like how he, he says with a straight face when I started this and put fifty hundred million dollars of my own. I think he originally expected to put fifty million dollars into SpaceX or something mm-hmm. like that. Ended up doubling it. Mm-hmm. Um and and his original gut reaction was we probably have like a ten percent or less chance of success. You gotta have some some balls to, to put up fifty million bucks. 
the, uh, he told a story one time, like Christmas Eve 2008, mid-world crashing off a cliff. Yeah. He had, I don't remember the amount of money left, but he had basically gone through the whole war chest that he had gotten yeah. from PayPal and whatever the little company was he had before that where he got an eight-figure deal out of it. Mm -hmm. And he said with his two companies, Tesla and SpaceX, if he would just make a decision and let one fail, the other had a 90% chance of living based on the amount of money he could put into it. But if he put money into both, the chances that they were both going to die was maybe it was like 70 or 80% or something. And he said, I just believed in it so much that I said, I'm either going down with both of them or, oh, well. That's an amazing, amazing set of balls and an amazing vision to be able to do that. It is. And, and he was, if I remember correctly, he was borrowing money for rent. Yes. To pay rent because he had sunk every penny into both of those companies. Yep. And on, on like the last possible day, pulled out a financing round, I think, for, for both of them, if I'm correct. Literally both of them. Yeah. 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 Which is like, so I've experienced raising money for one and in a crunch, that is very difficult <laughs> to do it for two businesses of that scale at the same time, both on their deathbed, so to speak. Very, very difficult. That, that takes a lot. It also says a lot about the team that he put together, um, which I think is something that he, f he focuses on pretty heavy. But like he can acquire some world-class talent. Yeah. That yeah. might be like the single hardest part about building a high-growth technology company. It's building high-performance teams and acquiring like just world-class people. How do you do that to – actually, you know what? Let's – before I even ask you this because people are listening to you talk right now and they're like, all right, what is this guy up to? This is, this is, this is nuts. Yeah. Let's – cover some of that first so we have some context here on your yeah. background because one of the things that really struck me is your path is it was fast and it was extremely unorthodox you weren't yeah. you didn't grow up in palo alto you didn't you didn't grow up hacking into the government system at age eight and nope. getting caught you know in your living room you weren't one of those guys you just kind of were interested and fell into this and then just ate it up. So take me into when you really first started looking at tech and how it happened and, and we'll get to what you're doing right now. Yeah. So, so when I was in, we'll go back to college days a little bit. Um, when I was in college, um, I was working a sales job and, um, was intrigued, but, uh, I, I think in general, I, I saw a series of world problems um, like, like as I would go throughout my day to day, I would say like, wow, that is just a horrible process. Or, um, why does it take me 35 minutes to do something that I could probably do in 30 seconds if I could automate it? Or like, there were just a series of things that I looked at and said, this is like fundamentally broken. Um, so I think that was the point where I realized like I'm going to do something, um, didn't quite know what it was. And then... I think the so, – so I started um, kind of dove into tech as a business um, somewhat by accident. I was intrigued by um, the idea that you could take a series of pictures and create a 3D environment out of it, um, much cheaper and much easier than some $60,000, $80,000 camera that did it. Um, 
So I wanted to try and, and see if there was a way to do that. Um, I had a buddy that I went to high school with that was um, much more technical than me. So reached out to him and he, were you a coder at all or um a little bit okay. not not much um uh-huh. yeah i i had design and media background which i think was like very helpful you're um, creative yeah so t- I, I even today like i still do um a lot of the user interface and user experience design wow um, to, to be honest mostly because it gives me like a it's like a happy place so yeah. Like if um if I'm just like drained in legal stuff or whatever it is, I can I can nosy away and do some design work. But um yeah, so so that's kind of where it started. I asked him if if it was something that was possible. Um, which by the way, I also learned is like the wrong question. Because it's always possible. It's like, how can we do it and how can we do it cheap and quick? Yeah. Um, and are those two things possible together? Um but yeah, so so he he put something together that was like, I guess what you would call a a proof of concept, and we said, oh shit, it actually works. And what um, did you what did you have in mind? What you wanted to use it for, or you're just like high level? Hey, I really just want to turn pictures into a video. <laughs> yeah, I mean to be fair, it was like the the um, the place that I was living at the time. It was like this could be pretty cool if we like made this a three D space. <laughs> so let me let me do a little replay here. You were what, 19, 20 years old? Yeah, somewhere around there. So you're sitting on your couch. Are you smoking a bong or a bowl? (laughs) I actually did not smoke much (laughs) in college, which is like surprising. Um, And the exact opposite of most of the people around me. I can just tell you, that's how that comment, like, could this be 3D? What if we just like took a picture and then, oh shit. Yeah. It's usually how it goes. Yeah. I I was probably drinking at the time, hanging out in the living room. That works. Yeah, I I think. it was kind of strange, but um, said like, "Damn, this would be pretty cool." Yeah, and like maybe somebody will pay for it later. Like if it's something that's um, like intriguing to me, maybe there's somebody else that it's also intriguing to. Um, what were you studying in school? Was this related at all to what you were doing? I, I was a finance major at William Patterson. Yeah. So no, no, completely unrelated. Yeah. Wow. Um, so I, I was. Well, I was finance and, and comm dual, um, but I don't think I ever took a comm class. And I also, I don't think I ever took, I might've taken one gen ed. I, I, I was very frustrated in, in school in general, just because like, I, I didn't want to take like an English one class. I wanted to take like corporate finance and like mm. things that were useful. Um, yeah. So, so I ended up not graduating from, from college, but um, we'll get there in a minute. Yeah, it, it turned out okay. <laughs> yeah, keep going. Yeah, so so um, I, I guess we ended up building what what would be like um, a a base proof of life, right? So it was mm-hmm. like, oh shit, okay, this is possible. Um, we threw it together. We used the the house that I was living in as like a a, a test. Looks pretty cool. And we had a friend that worked in New York real estate, and he was over drinking one weekend and it's like oh shit guys like i would pay for this <laughs> I, th- I think mm. like i could sell condos like this so we went and we did it and he sold a condo and wow. uh we got paid pretty good on it and it was like son of a bitch so how did you do that did you 
take the concept and put it on a website so that people could watch, like, go to the website and watch it, or and that's how it was sold. No, so it was it was really clunky at the time. It was like the early um, VR on mobile days, where like you either needed a Google Cardboard um, that was like not great experience, um, or a Samsung phone and a Gear VR. It was like this uh, black and white plastic device. You would pop a Samsung phone in there and, and like you could view it. And um, we were like putting the experience directly onto the phone, like storing it on the phone physically. Um, so that, like that was the only place it was living. And then uh, none of, well, first off, none of us had Samsung phones. So like- So you had to go buy one. Yeah. So we were like buying phones, putting the experience on there. And then shipping out like this, uh, th- this device, this headset with a phone, and the phones were like pretty expensive. We were making a good amount of money, but um, part of it was like on sale, like if they sold it. Yeah. Um, so most of the time we were like, shit, we just paid like eight hundred bucks for that phone. <laughs> I really hope I got that phone back. Yeah. <laughs> and it's going like Please return. across the world too. Yeah. Like oh, you're sending sh- it to other countries. <laughs> yeah. I'm like. That that's gone, that that one's gone. That's getting lost somewhere in in customs in Dubai or whatever. It's a tax um, write off at yeah. least. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, but anyway, it, as clunky as it was, we we built some good IP there, um, which was nice and and learned a lot of really good lessons there. Um, one that there is a very smart time to raise money, and the concept of raising money was uh, a little bit foreign, um, new like relatively how it worked and what you should do and what you should look for if you're um, a founder that's that's trying to decide whether or not you're like a venture, uh, uh, whether you are building a business that fits the venture model. Um, but a lot of like the execution on like how do I raise financing was just like a little bit foreign. So yeah, um, you're also kids, basically in a in a college dorm. Yeah, bumping yeah, into something. You're not sitting out in Palo Alto, like all right, yeah. I'll, I'll get a meeting with this VC. Yeah, yeah, like not not attainable in any yeah. way. So like, um, yeah, yeah. So so we um, we saw there was a, a com- potential competitor at the time that ended up being like a oh yeah, they're a competitor. Um, it was one of the early Google employees. Uh, had the same kind of concept, build it into hardware and also just as software. They're still operating and not for nothing, they're a billion dollar plus business. So I think we were on to something, yeah. um, which is nice. It's a company called Matterport. Um, wow. And they do like, it's it's VR and virtual tours for real estate. So like most of, like if you have any friends in, in commercial or residential yeah. real estate, they probably work with them. Um, you yeah, want to talk about so. economy of scale too? I mean, yeah, early employee at Google. Yeah, yeah. How do you even compete with that? You know what I mean? Yeah, and and like access to capital too. Like right out of the gate, I forget how much it was he raised, but I remember looking at it saying like, Jesus Christ, yeah. Like how how do you? I think it was like ten million bucks what, or something like that. Twenty million bucks. What were you guys even? Because again. 
who are you thinking of calling? And where do you even know where to start? It's They don't teach you in college. No. Here's how you do a seed round. Here's <laughs> how you do a series yeah. A. They really, in business school, they don't teach you that. Yeah, no. So what was your, did you even have a plan? Or are you calling up like Uncle Bob, who's got like a Porsche in the backyard and might have a, you know, $10,000 lying around? Yeah, I mean, I, that's that's what we did first. Yeah. Um, like, our, like our first money in was like friends and family. Yeah. Like, hey, I think I'm on to something. Um, there's a chance that it dies. We all lose our money, but like, feel pretty good about it. Um, the one thing that you do know is like me and the team, you know, like we're not going to just peel over. Mm -hmm. Um, we're, we're going to like stick it through no matter what. So if it's not this, it's something else. And, and I later learned that that's a lot of what early stage investors look for in general. Um, like I've had quite a few people say, Hey, I don't even understand what you're doing, um, but I'll give you a quarter million or a half a million dollars um, just because I'd like to be a part of anything that you do. I like you. I, I, I know that you will build something incredible. To be fair, I am not in any way um, able to judge what you're doing right now from a technical perspective, but I'd, I'd give you, if you need the cash, like if you're raising financing, I'll participate because I like you and I like the team and like, I know you're going to do something. So a lot of early stage investors, that that's kind of what they're looking for. Is, is it a rock star team? And even if this isn't the one, I want to get involved with as these early as possible. Yeah. yeah, because if that first business dies, I want to be their first phone call when they've learned as much as there is to learn about how to build a company and how not to build a company, that the next time when they're spot on, I get to write the first check and I get the crazy returns. So you're young. This is when you, I assume, decided to leave college? Yeah, it was actually before before that. So um, I think the aha for me was the first person that wanted to pay for software. It was mm -hmm. like, holy shit, this, there might be something here. And uh, I'm frustrated as hell with, with college. Did so, you have debt? Um, like, College student debt. debt? Yeah, yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So, so like that was the, um, I think that was the tipping point. It's like, I'm, I'm already frustrated. I've, I've been kind of like coasting through and trying to pick up as much knowledge as I can in like finance. And I was also hitting the point where, um, I couldn't keep going without doing gen ads. Yeah. Like there, there were requirements that I had to hit on the gen ed side to be able to take those like late finance classes. I think this was like sophomore into junior year. So I knew I wasn't going to get much further in the stuff that I actually cared about without doing a bunch of nonsense. Um, so uh, that coupled with uh, there might be something here was like, shit, all right, I'll take a leave. And then I took a leave of absence, just never, I don't even know if I technically dropped out. Um, <laughs> They're still waiting. I think, it, yeah. Right. It's like, he'll be back in the um, fall. But yeah, I, I, I took a leave and that was it. Wow. Um, yeah. And, but you were a finance major. So did you, did you go into college saying, oh, well, I want to have this kind of job or do that kind of thing? Or was it totally, you had no idea what you wanted to do? I, I had, I had high level ideas. Um, like, like I knew general things that excited me. Um, like I liked media. At one point, there was this, like, maybe I'll do, like, media law. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was another big stint where I was like, I, I want to be an investment banker. That's where the action is. Mm-hmm. There, there's a lot of money there. It would be super fun. Um, and I'll hate myself for three, four years, but like I'll absolutely love it after that. You watched um, The Wolf of Wall Street yeah. right before college. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Maybe yeah. a couple too many times. And yeah. I was like, yep, <laughs> that's it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so I think um, there was actually like this, there was a specific class um, that I took. I think I'm pretty sure this was freshman year, maybe first or second semester of freshman year. Um, and it was like the first econ class that you like are required to take if you're a finance major. And the professor, I learned later that she was an adjunct teaching one uh, econ class. And during the day, she was a partner at Goldman in investment banking. Um, But I kind of like, uh, not that I half-assed her class because I was doing very well, but like I would show up when I needed to show up. When I didn't, I wouldn't. Um, And I was frustrated at like the the lack of um, like depth to, to the... Uh, I guess coursework, um, and she could tell. She was like, "What the hell is this kid doing?" So uh, she grabbed me at the end of class one day and said, "Like, hey, um, he, what are you doing? I get you're getting good grades, but like, there will be a point where you hit a brick wall and you won't be able to coast through anymore." Um, and this is like, I'm sure my dad said this to me like ten thousand times through high school. Um, in high school, like, I did okay. But like, I didn't put a lot of effort into it. I think because I like wasn't, I wasn't engaged enough. Um, there wasn't like that that challenge to keep me engaged. Um, so like, I did just what I needed to. Um, yeah, you strike so, me as a guy who's very, your hands on. You like experience. You like actually jumping in to do things. You're not really. You're not the kind of guy that I think really gets himself up for, and correct me if I'm wrong here, for going in and hearing a lecture on something. See, I think it depends on what it is, right? Like, mm. so so if it's somebody that has, like, extreme domain experience and ha- has just a wealth of knowledge that they can share, I'm engaged 100% if it's something that's, like, relevant. But I think it's like anything. Like, like I wouldn't be a hundred percent tuned in on a medical lecture about, uh, the best way to remove a spleen, right? Like that's just not, it's not something that's relevant to me. Um, and especially if it's like somebody who's never practiced medicine telling me that, like it doesn't carry the same weight. Um, so I think that was like one of the things that I struggled with. Um, later learned that like, like now I, I, I will take a call with anybody. Like it doesn't matter who they are. Um, because I've had like the strangest connections and best conversations with people that like, it's, it's seemingly random. Yeah. Um, so like I'll take a call with anybody and like test the water and like see how it goes kind of thing. Um, but, but I think that goes back to like the, um, if it's something that like is relevant or super engaging or like uh, deeply intellectual conversation and things like that, like uh, now I'm engaged. You're in. Yeah, yeah, and like I'll sit. I could sit through like like Peter Thiel. A lot of people, when they watch some of his, like he did a really good Stanford lecture. Like I was engaged for yeah. two plus hours. I mean, I could I could sit all night and watch Peter talk because it's like a topic that's relevant. 
I like his um, – I, I like a lot of what he stands for and, and what he talks about. So like, yeah, I, I can sit and watch it. But in other situations, yeah, not as much. Well. comes down to interest. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and, and I think that's pretty normal too. And yeah, yeah. so maybe you were just – you were really one of those guys and there's a lot of guys like this where you were more doing what you thought you were supposed to do rather than – what you wanted to do and yeah. then you fell into something you're like oh i want to do this yeah 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 and like it, it's like if you um I, I remember one class specifically like in college i took an astronomy class or whatever because i was forced to take it right i took um, that too yeah yeah like and i i generally like astronomy like yeah. I, th I think it's fun but like that's not what i wanted to spend my time doing especially when i was taking like like three other finance classes. Like I was taking like financial accounting or managerial accounting or something, corporate finance, and then astronomy. <laughs> like there's a, yeah. So <laughs> that was like a challenge. Um, and not because the subject matter wasn't interesting. It was just like a, this isn't relevant to me today right now. I could be doing something better with my time. Yeah. So yeah. So there, I could, I could do a, go down a rabbit hole on education for, for hours. It's, I think there are a lot of challenges there. It's 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 a wide open topic right now too, though, yeah. just because in higher education, the cost that we're looking at and what's uh, what we're doing to society as a result. I mean, you're indirectly painting the picture because there's a lot of people who go and just do either like they do something wide open because they're told you can do anything you want here, and then yeah. it has no utility after college, or they do what they think they're supposed to do, and then they go to do it after college, and they're like, "Well, shit, that ain't it," you know. But they're left with a hundred k in debt or one hundred fifty k in debt, and they didn't know what an in what an interest rate was at age seventeen, and well, yeah. now they do. <laughs> yeah, I, I was talking to so my brother, my younger brother is a finance major at Rutgers. Mm. And I was talking to him about like what he wanted to do when he graduates um, or even before graduation, like an internship. I think this was last year. Um, I was like, so so what about like an investment banking internship? Because he was interested in kind of the same thing, things. Yeah. So investment banking or VC um, or, or, or something, something different. He's like, well, I, I have zero knowledge to be able to go into an even an internship, be able to like hold my own weight. And it's not yeah. because like I didn't kill my classes. It's because like nobody even taught like like core core principles. Like if I go into a, a, a VC internship, I don't – if it weren't for you, I would not know what VC is or, or how funds are structured or like what an LP was in, a, in the VC world. Mm -hmm. Just foreign concepts that are super relevant today that you would never know. They are all – and I'm going to generalize here, but when you look at successful VCs, you want to talk about guys who are just about getting to the core of issues. That's that's what they do. Yeah. And we think of them as this complex world. And you've now obviously had a chance to see a lot of them up close and personal and, and deal with them. So you know a lot better than I do, and I'll let you describe it. But at a high level, these guys come in and, and they have their three main boxes that they need checked to decide yay or nay, or not even yay or nay, just like, are we going to consider this one or is this trashed? Yeah. And those involve, you talked about earlier, 
looking at the team, the people. What do we feel from them? How do these guys talk? What is their vision? What is their vision beyond what they're bringing in the room right now? You look at how organized are they? What's their burn rate? How much How much do these guys understand what they can do with the capital they're given? Because we're going to give yep. them our money. There's, there's all these things. And even in like a general accounting course where you're going through balance sheets and stuff to relate it to the burn rate one, they don't really teach you like, okay, well, th this company that's in CompuSci comes in and says they're going to build this software and they're going to spend 7500 a month. It's none of that. They don't evaluate that. Yeah, it's – it's um, I think it's crazy how like none of that is taught. But um, to me, what, what they're – so like this is how I would approach it and this is – so the, the good VCs, this is what I've seen. Um, it, it's it's a lot of like team story um, and like being well thought through each of those components, right? Like, like there's this common misconception around early stage financing too, specifically, that like uh, I feel like I see, especially on like the VC section of Twitter, right? I see all the time like, um, I'm early stage. I pitched a bunch of Z VCs. I didn't raise any money. Nobody wanted to deal with me. Like the, they're really looking for like early growth. Like if you add the word growth, everything that they say makes so much more sense, right? Like you need to have like the early signs of growth and you need to have like, um, a, a killer team that you can point to, whether it's like things that you've built or like why that team works well together or like. Like there, there has to be something that says like these guys can build a billion dollar plus company, ten billion dollar plus, because ultimately, like every investment that they make, they're looking to return the fund like three x or five mm x. -hmm. They're not looking for like a hundred million dollar exit. Maybe some of the smaller funds, but if you're talking about like tier one, tier two Silicon Valley funds like Andreessen, uh, Sequoia, Kleiner Perkins. They're looking for like huge returns that can return 10 times their $100 million or $500 million fund. Right? And if they get to you and, and yeah. I know some of these guys, they only do Series A, Series B and yeah. stuff. But the companies that are coming in maybe on the angel investing side or just straight up on, on the seed side, I mean sometimes they can be looking at like, hey, maybe this one will be a 1,000x. I mean yeah. it can get that crazy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's like usually in those funds there's like – one or two per fund that make the entire fund. Yep. And that's it. They, they could lose the rest of the money and it doesn't matter because there is one ridiculous company in there with the just unicorns. crazy outside returns. Yeah. 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 Um, and they'll, they'll follow on for rounds to go to, especially the big funds. They have like, there's now these blurred lines between like uh, growth and like late stage and, there are funds that can write a $100,000 check or, or like a million is like somewhere in the small range, quarter million, um, all the way up to like a $100 million mm -hmm. check. Um, they can like support you through many stages of life. Um, how, how often do you see, let's say you're – because. I think the one thing we didn't say is that obviously you have to have a good idea. That's that's yeah, yeah. that's important. You can't walk in there and be like, "Oh, I created a document." Like, <laughs> that's not going to work. Yeah. But that's Captain Obvious statement. Sorry, yeah. but how often do you see some of these bigger places come across an idea that they love, something that they look at and say, "It's oh, this I think this is a unicorn." A unicorn meaning 
pre-IPO valuation of a billion dollars eventually. How often do you see a company, though, come in and say, you know what? You guys are looking to raise 20. We want to do the whole thing. We don't want anyone else on it. Um, I, I actually don't see that that frequently. Um, usually, like, I, I think it depends on the size of the round and, like, the, the people. But um, g- good investors um, will want additional help, right? Like, so... So when you're picking, especially early stage, when you're picking like a fund, you're not just taking a check from them, right? Like they're they're going to help you with a lot of the key problems that you have, or at least you hope that they will, right? Like if I have trouble recruiting, like I, I want to be able to ask them, hey, can you help me recruit world-class yeah. engineers? Yeah. Um, and, and naturally, somebody with a brand name will help you do that, um, but- there's still be, maybe additional challenges or like like one of the things that we look at, um, we're on a very high growth path, um, exponential growth quickly. And that brings a new set of challenges. There might be a ton of operational stuff that I'm handling today that like I, I just can't handle all in six months or a year, right? So I want to be able to go to them and say, I want the best operator that you know to come and help. And and like they will help you do that. Um, th- these are people that will be like somewhat active. Like a, the, your first phone call when something goes horrible and your first phone call when something goes amazing and like you're both popping a bottle of champagne. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's a, it's a lot more than cash. And I, I think that's like – important, especially for people that are like thinking about raising venture financing, um, you're basically getting married to somebody. So circling back, those, those investors typically want a group of other investors that can also a reduce some financial burden in the future. If you go to raise more money, it's kind of the concept of network effects. Like Mm. if we need to raise a, a, $200 $200 million in a year, I want some help to help me bring in that kind of money or um, have a, a stronger network of people that can also get you new talent or whatever it might be. So Yeah, I'm always a little – that makes a lot of sense to me now just because I'll see deals come across where it's like Series A or something like that yeah. and you will literally see – I don't know if this was an exact example, but you might see Andreessen Horowitz along with Teal. They led the deal, and then there's yep. three other huge companies right there. And the amount, and I say only here just because we're talking about the big dogs, the amount might be a $30 million deal. I mean that's that's a bad day for Peter Teal, right? <laughs> so if he wanted to do the full 30, he could do it. And that's, that's why I'm asking that just because yeah. I'm, I'm surprised sometimes that especially when they're then talking about it publicly and they have, they seem to have such a high conviction about it could be an act, but yeah. you're putting your money behind something when these guys have it. I just wonder if they're like, all right, we're, we're going to do the whole thing, but that makes sense. Just adding, it's basically adding more resources and more allocation of time for also more resources with a bunch of power players who all want the same thing. They want the success of company X. Yeah, and I, I think a lot of this is driven by the founders too because in, in mm. really hot deals that everybody's talking about, so to speak, um, y- you have kind of like your pick of who you want to work with and everybody provides some different value. 
Mm. Um, so if I'm a founder in a really hot deal, I'm saying, hey, I, I, you guys are leading, um, but I want to fill it out with a bunch of strategics, people that can provide a, a bunch of different strategic help along the way. Like, um, example, NVIDIA Ventures, right? Like if you have something that's like um, a, a innovation using GPU or AI or, or something that's like NVIDIA bread and butter, you might want them for strategic reasons. Mm. So like they would happily follow along if Sequoia and Teal led the round or, or something like that, right? Like it's it's pretty easy to to kind of fill out the follow-on once you have that lead. And that's that's typically like how that works. So you go out and you pick your lead investor or you, you pitch a bunch of lead investors. Once you've found a lead, then you kind of fill it out and usually the lead will help you fill it out if, if like that's not in your network. You can say, hey, would you... Who else do you want to involved in the deal? Something so, like that. so it's it's pretty clear you you know a lot about this and you know a lot from experience. Yeah. So I want to go back to how you then took selling the IP of company one and moving it into what you're doing now because what you're doing now is what we spoke about before the podcast and I think at the beginning of the podcast too, which is moving strictly into spatial technology and basically going far beyond what you did with your proof of concept in that first project. So the name of this company you have now is Soar. Yep. And tell us what you do. Yeah. So we build what's essentially uh, holograms. So we capture <laughs> we capture people in 3D. Are you here right and now? We stream them. Yeah. Are you here? Yes, I am. Hold on. Reach out your hand. Yep. All right, he's here. He's here. Just making sure. Yeah, I can feel the table and everything. Yeah. Okay. I'll go. One day. All right. Uh, all right. Relax. Yeah. Then, yeah. So, so we build. Um, it, it's essentially um, a platform for real-time streaming holograms um, or true captured 3D content, really. Right? Mm. So, um, like, I'll give you like a little bit of a walkthrough. You use a series of cameras. You can capture and stream somebody in real time um, to any device, uh, phone, tablet, headset, a pair of glasses, when we have them in the future, um, holographic displays, they're starting to come out now. So it's, it is the, um, at its core, like, like our IP, our core IP now is a real time pipeline for compression and distribution of 3D content. Okay. Yeah. Let's define some of this. So, a lot one, to unpack there. There's a lot to yeah. unpack here, and I know you haven't even gotten to like the licensing and, and some of the yeah. work you're doing with it. But let's say you had your special cameras, yep, all up right here, and you wanted to create a hologram of you to put into some room in in California. Yeah, you would capture that here, and in re your technology in real time would allow you speaking and moving around and whatever to be 3D as if you are literally sitting there with people in California. Yeah. It's, it's telepresence. It's true telepresence. And the, the cameras are off-the-shelf cameras produced by like Intel and Microsoft too. So they're a couple hundred bucks a piece. And they're, they're Come about, on. About the size of your hand. Yeah. Come on. So it's not like this crazy complex setup. Um like they're Intel, Microsoft have done some crazy research in this. Nobody's been able to achieve real time, but um, 
some of the on-demand stuff, they've they've built these super complex, like I think Intel's was like 10,000 square foot of just like hundreds of cameras and like all kinds of crazy shit. Uh, I think there was like five or eight miles of fiber lines in there just to move the data. Um, meanwhile, we're compressing and streaming it in real time. So what did you guys, because you're using their cameras, what part did you guys invent? Like the software that actually compresses this and streams yeah. it? Yeah. So mm. so we, and we're, we're camera agnostic. So you can use an Intel um, camera or you can use a Microsoft camera. And really like the special kind of camera that you need is a depth camera. So you need, it, it picks up RGB, the color, mm -hmm. just like a regular mm -hmm. camera would. And then it also picks up depth using like infrared. So it'll, it'll be able to pick up depth of, of a person or, or an environment. And then it maps the color to it, just like a regular camera would. You guys started working on this right after you sold the last IP. Yeah. However you want to say it. Yep. At the beginning, did you already have the concept of this designed? Did you know or did this happen over time? Did you fall into it? So we um, – because when, when we moved – when we started the, the second business, we um, knew that this is something that we wanted to do but knew that the compression problem was a very – very hard problem. Can you define compression for people? I know what you're talking about, but I just yeah, want to make so, sure everyone understands. So like highest level possible, you're taking um, a tremendous amount of data and uh, making it smaller. So a mm. um, good way to think of this is like water through a pipe. Um, we're taking a lot of water. Um, if you were to put um, leaves in that water, we're basically removing the extra water um, and sending just enough water to carry the leaves so that it can fit through a smaller pipe. Got it. Okay. That might have been a bad analogy. That was it's, the first time I've ever used that one. No, that's I it was it was pretty good. Yeah. I'll take the, it a step farther with an example to let you go off on to see if this might make sense. But if I upload a two gigabyte video maybe it's a nine minute clip or something like that to YouTube. YouTube takes that and then they use their system to compress the file and then put it within their full server so that now it's its own link and you or me or anyone comes in and clicks it if it's public and we can go experience the video, in this case, full HD video on YouTube. When they do that, my understanding, I could be wrong, is that they're basically taking those two gigabytes during that upload process and they are compressing it and they're getting it down to whatever size they get it for their yep. servers. So what you're saying is that you do that with being able to stream a hologram somewhere else in real time with volume and all that and your major value add is that you have invented a software that allows you to take an enormous file size, shrink it down to the minimal amount so that you can do this and then not lose any quality, meaning you don't see the hologram pausing or yep. lagging. You just see a literal person as if he's sitting there until you try to punch him in the face and your hand goes through it. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's, that is like pretty spot on. Okay. Um, cool. I think the, the, uh, uh, an important note to add is that it's general purpose. So it works for anything 3D. 
So it doesn't necessarily have to be holograms. It can be um, 3D content that's currently being streamed. Like the, the, the way that we compress what, what's the difference? 3D data. Well, so it wouldn't need to be true captured 3D content, right? Like, like we, could, we could aid in the streaming of game content that's not captured using a series of cameras. Like it could be generated content um, immediately applicable with captured content. Um, but but think think about game like if you're playing uh, Call of Duty online, you, mm-hmm. 3D data is being streamed, right? But it's so we still, could compress that, make it faster, and you can make it more realistic because you would use you could yeah. Meaning when we're looking at Call of Duty right now, it's much more realistic than it was five ten years ago. Yeah. But you can still tell the guy you're using is I mean he's a video game. It, it's it's not it's it's a graphic. It's not an actual rendering of a person. It's yeah. not perfect. You're saying that you can do that, but you can maybe take me and literally put me in the video game, and you may be able to tell I'm a hologram, but it looks exactly like me. Yeah, yeah. So so that's like um, you can you can start to see the rabbit hole opening. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, we're um, going down it. Yep. We're going down. Yeah, and and the. Um, the other good note is that, um, a lot of people don't realize that like content is streamed, whether it is live or on demand, right? So, so if you have on demand content that you can stream, uh, the smaller the file and the less data you're streaming, the faster it can be because of internet speeds and bandwidth limitations. And the cheaper it is for that person delivering the content to you. Because the mm-hmm. person delivering the content gets a bill from AWS or Google mm-hmm. Cloud. And, and it's per gig or, or per byte is a good way to look at it. So any time that you can compress it better without losing quality, you're going to take it. Especially because economies of scale, a, a small amount more compressed per, uh, per file across millions or tens of millions of files is a significant amount of money. Does this work in both directions, though? And let me define that because that makes no sense. I saw this article. It was going around at the end of the summer, and it was we were talking about it on a couple podcasts in a different context. But this guy, James Altucher, wrote an article about New York City and the state of everything there as a lifelong New Yorker and how bad it was but he was going through why he thinks it's in danger of never being the same which obviously caused a huge reaction but he broke it down into all these different segments and one segment he broke it down into i was just interested outside of the article itself but he was explaining that it has to do with bit rate capacity on wi-fi and i think it was a little more technical and exact of a term but what he was saying is that If we wanted to Zoom or Skype in 2010, 2011, here is the speed per second we could do it over Skype or Zoom or whatever it was versus here's the speed we can do it now. And by the way, that means we can render this many pixels and it's this much faster and there's no delay and the voice comes in this much clearer. So his point was all of our general Wi-Fi, whether it be at home or in the office, can now support much more. And what you're saying is you guys take down the amount it has to support. 
So it's almost like in one way, we have our capacity increasing. And while the capacity is increasing, you're also decreasing the need the capacity has, which I guess the lower you go just makes it faster and faster. It doesn't have a crossover point where it doesn't matter anymore. Well, so so a good way to think of it is is like a pipe when the pipe gets bigger, right? So the the right, when you go yeah. from 3G to 4G, yep. they made the pipe bigger. When you go from 4G to 5G, you're making yep. you're making the pipe bigger. If if we can reduce what's being sent to um, from half of the pipe to a quarter of the pipe, now you have three quarters of the pipe open that we can also deliver additional content on top of that experience or anything. So versus like having half or taking up the entire damn pipe like yeah. <laughs> pre-compression the best wi-fi network uh or, or best internet network that you can buy um residentially in the country would not be enough bandwidth mm. <laughs> so okay like pretty crazy and and then we get it down to roughly audio file size so that's nuts. Yeah. So if I on on our lowest quality setting, I'm trying to picture the size here. When I record this podcast, I record it in waveform, which is you know the highest audio form. You can't upload waveform to your podcast provider who's going to put it out on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and all that because the files are huge. It, it, no one's going to stream a, a two gigabyte audio file. I mean, yeah. it's crazy to download on your phone. But I end up exporting this at 192 kilobits a second, which is based on the research I did. It's that's pretty much the highest anyone goes. There's like a couple shows in the universe that do 256, but 192 is about as high as it goes. And the size of those files comes out to maybe for a, a two and a half hour podcast, it'll be 220 millibytes or something like that. What is the size of say? Not that you're going to stream something for that long, though you could. But what is the size of, say, streaming something in hologram form for 10 minutes right now related um, to that? So I'd have to do some math. Uh, so so on, our, on our highest quality setting, we'd be at like 25 megabit per second. Um, raw, I think that's... Um, yeah, it's 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 a lot. Um, I don't know. A, a five minute clip might be like forty gigs or something like that. Oh wow. Okay, so Maybe it's bigger. still huge. It's oh, yeah, still yeah. enormous. Yeah. Well, no, not post compression. Oh, pre, that's pre compression. Pre yeah, yeah. And yeah, can so, you and you can compress in real time? Yeah, yeah. Oh. We're compressing and streaming in real time. I watch Silicon Valley. Can you yeah. tell? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that I mean, is. I watch all of that. It's a great show. Yeah. It is a great show. <laughs> the, you'd be surprised how many like. Like even even people that, um, so I've I've uh, I think I've been thrown into the fire enough that like I'm no longer uh, quote unquote starstruck by somebody. But mm -hmm. um, like every once in a while, like I'll be talking to somebody that has like a recognizable name, and they'll make a comment, and I'm just like, no way! <laughs> like he watched that too. <laughs> uh, like so, I think it was somebody yeah. it was somebody recognizable in Silicon Valley. Um, like one of the big tech, uh, founders. And he said, like, you guys have essentially built like 
what they were talking about in Silicon Valley. I'm like, yeah, yeah. I keep yeah. on thinking about that because that is yeah. that is literally what they did. Yep. I don't think if I remember the show correctly, it's been a while. I don't think they had the full concept you do with literal holograms and like creating new space, but their their value add was literally to take files and whatever you gave them, they could compress it to this crazy small size. So all yeah. these companies, software companies could come to them and say, all right, we need this down to this and they could do it. Yeah. And if you remember when they, um, I think they were on the stage of TechCrunch <laughs> and they weren't sure whether a 3D file was going to work. Yeah. This is why they weren't sure if a 3D file was going to work. Because like some of it, some of the compression uh, will cross over, but like to get really good 3D compression, you have to build really good 3D compression, right? Yeah. Like like something that works standard for 2D will not work standard for 3D. So you'll you'll chop down some of it. Because inside 3D, you're still, like, compressing RGB. Like, there's still color information there, right? So, like, you can compress color information the same way. You got to, like, split it. And yeah, so it's, like, way more complex. But um, at a high level, like, that that was was kind of, like, one of the things that was hit on a couple times in the show, um, which is pretty funny to look back. You're talking about that. 2D and 3D difference, though, in in that answer you just gave. And I'm a little confused there because in my head, I concept 3D as this or anything around me. Like, it's literally like you can see the full volume of it. 2D, I've always thought of it as it's like what I draw on a paper or something like that. Yeah. How are you talking about it? What do Um, you mean when you say that? Yeah, so so I think a... a well, the way that we look at it is like pixel versus voxel, right? So you have it, – it's it's 2D information or, or 3D information. So like if I'm actually capturing – I think that's one of the biggest things. Like, like if you look at like a 2D camera, like I'm picking up 2D information. I'm picking up um, color um, and like it kind of stops there, right? If I'm If I'm capturing something with a depth camera – which is like the the kind of camera that we use. I'm I'm also picking up 3D data or or like that third dimension which is depth. So so if you're looking at what's coming out of a, a depth camera versus a 2D video camera, you would see um like one of these cameras would pick up my side um and and you could actually see like the depth from here to here. I'm just um, looking on here while you're talking, like looking at you to describe yeah. it. Yeah. So like if the camera is straight on 2D, you can kind of get a sense of depth because of the color, because of the light and shadows and things like that as to where like a, a depth camera is actually picking up the depth here. So so like it's, it's a series of infrared, um, like an IR blaster, an infrared blaster that's like actually picking up depth so if if you look yeah, at pull like that a, in a little bit sorry yeah the, the mic yeah. if you pull if you look at like a, a raw depth map um or or like just what the the depth sensor is picking up um you'll see like that third third dimension of uh content so you guys everything you produce is 3d 
Yeah. You are using all depth cameras. So when you say RGB, you're talking about the red, green, blue color spectrum. Yeah. It's for people because that's like a little bit of a buzzword. And then you are actually getting that, I mean, just to describe it, like that 3D. Like I feel like you're there watching it. So you capture it, somebody in the room, and what is every outlet through which you then provide a service and in english what i mean by that is <laughs> sorry <laughs> what i mean by that is are you going to clients and saying okay we're gonna put you in another room somewhere else that's one thing you've talked about are you also going to people and saying we're gonna create simulated experiences meaning we're going to pre-record something and then let you play it, like hit a play button and it's 3D right there. And then are you also going to people with straight AR, augmented reality, and saying, we're going to put stuff, we're going to create experiences where you have to use your phone and that's the only way you're going to see it. Like, where do you guys fall here? Yeah, so so I like to, the way that I explain this, because um, we get this question a lot, right? I'll bet. Um, yeah. I, I explain it like this, we're... We're trying to build a, a true platform technology, right? So the best way to do that is to build the tools that people need to create this type of content. So I, I think like volumetric is is a new type of medium, right? It, it's like true 3D content. Um, so, so just like how 2D is a medium as a whole, volumetric video or, or true 3D video is a new medium. Oh, that's the term for 3D. Yeah, so so that's what we call it, volumetric video. Um, that's like the the 3D or some people call it 4D video. It's a good thing you guys name this stuff because like if it were me, I'd be like three fucking D. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. what it's called. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you give a nice name to it. It's volumetric. Yeah, kind of rolls off the tongue. That comes out of the out of the science side, and yeah. and and happens to sound nice. There are some terms that don't sound so nice, but mm -hmm. this is what we call it. Um, like we in in part of our compression pipeline, uh, there's there's a like the first component that it goes through, like the first step that it goes through is um, we were calling it volumization. Which hmm. in the volume family, yeah, I yeah. don't know that that's a word, but it is now step one of our compression uh, process, right? So um, it, it kind of sounds nice, but um, yeah. So so we, um, I look at this as is like a platform technology, and and the easiest way to build a repeatable, scalable business. This kind of ties back in with where we were talking about some companies don't fit the venture model. The venture model is is exponential growth. Mm -hmm. um, it's high growth, high return, um, not taking 20 years to build it, and not something that you're that you're looking to hold on to. You're, you're looking at an exit point or a potential exit point. Um, so the uh, the repeatable, scalable nature of like a platform technology means that I can provide the tools to anybody that wants to create volumetric content. Open source. Kind of like open source. Okay. Except we're not distributing the code. So, so like, um, th think Adobe, right? Like Adobe is a, a platform or a series of tools for creators to use, to create content. Um, where you distribute that content is up to you, but Adobe makes it as, as easy as possible to distribute wherever you want. Um, so that's kind of like what we do. 
Um, we work with a company called Eighth Wall um, in Los Angeles, and Eighth Wall built a really cool um, way to distribute augmented reality through a through a web link, right? So one one of the biggest challenges with AR was like I have to download uh, an app to be able to to view it and. That was the Pokemon Go thing. Yeah. You had to literally, yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. And and not everybody wants to download a purpose-built app mm-hmm. for each experience that they want to view. So like Eighthwall built a, um, a, a a way to distribute AR via a web link. So you can click the web link and it opens the camera view on your phone and now you can view an AR experience in the, in the environment around you. So like that is a, a, a method of distribution for volumetric content. So when you use the platform, if you want to distribute via web link, you can distribute via web link. If you want to distribute via your own app, we have an SDK. Um, I, th- I think the the goal there is to be as flexible as possible and keep working on making it as accessible as possible. Wow. So your full line of business seems to also be looking down the hole of licensability maybe too. Like are you – with your patented code, mm-hmm. are you looking to then be able to partner with companies and provide that for a fee and still maintain full ownership of what you're providing? Yeah, yeah. So so like we can we can license compression. Um, and it is uh, orders of magnitude greater than the industry standard for 3D compression um, in real time. So the um, the benefit there is is tremendous, um, and there are a lot of people that would uh, see tremendous value in in licensing just compression. Um, I think the ultimate goal is to to make it a true platform where. I don't really care what what you need to do with it. Um, you have access to it, and we control kind of like the end to end process there um, to make it as easy as possible. Uh, so, so that's the that's the ultimate goal. But yeah, we 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 can license uh, pure compression too. And who like do you have a client base right now that you're working with actively? And if so, what what are you what are you providing specifically? Are you literally already going full product and providing 3D experiences based on whatever they need or yeah so so we're we're working on some some pretty exciting stuff right now we'll we'll release some stuff in the in the near future but i can talk about like one of the one of the use cases that i see being um, very big in the near future uh, is live live sports and specifically smaller scale live sports um I think something like boxing, um, and we're uh, toying around with with how to do this now. There are still some science challenges, but are um, you going to put Logan Paul and Floyd Mayweather <laughs> in the middle of this table? We are we you doing are it? Sure, going to try. Yeah. Oh my god. Um, <laughs> oh my god. And I think so. When you think about that as a whole, right? Like now, I have full six degrees of freedom. I can move around <laughs> and have it happen right on my coffee table. I can I can like dive in and feel like I am stepping between the two as they throw punches at each other. Is it colored in? 
like like do we see color or is it oh yeah yeah no like it'll feel like it's happening in front of you so i could be and if people are listening right now my mind's blown but (laughs) if you're watching you can actually see me looking down at this blank table in front of me i can be looking down right now in this finger could i adjust the size too by the way yeah Oh you, my can, God. you can manipulate it, you can spin it, you can zoom, you can so put yourself my, in it. With my app or my remote control, whatever, however the hell you're going to do this, yep. I could have Floyd Mayweather right here and Logan Paul right here, and I could stand right here and watch it from that angle, or stand right here, or move it around like this. Yep, you could blow it up and make it the size of your... You could make them life-size and walk in the middle of the boxing ring. You um, have the compression power to do this right now. Yeah. Are you fucking with me? <laughs> no. No. So so the the challenge with something of that scale is that w- when there's when there's fast motion and this is this is kind of like some of the stuff that we're working on now but um with with a limited number of cameras there's there's going to be information that you you're not capturing. Um so the the obvious answer is add more cameras. Mm-hmm. Um and What's nice about the base that we built from like a, a compression pipeline standpoint is that the the scalability is there. So we could add, like we use a series of four cameras about the size of the palm of your hand. But like if we wanted to pick up color information from a red camera because the, the quality coming from a red mm-hmm. camera is much better, then we could do that and just use the depth out of a depth sensor and swap the color for the color out of a red camera. So or, if you if you have four cameras though, and, and I'm just going to do math here, yeah, like even take it simpler than that. And you say, all right, to get the full data and picture that we want, we're going to need eight. How much does that affect the size of the file now? Not exponentially. Um, really. And as as we test that, we'll see. But the the goal from the beginning was to build something that would be scalable to what could be the size of an NBA court, right? And and still be able to stream it over modern Wi-Fi networks. Um, <laughs> obviously, the stronger, the better, um, especially when it's when it comes to doing something like this. But um, yeah, yeah. So that is the, that's one of the big impact um, things that I see happening in sports. I think it's, it's true six degrees of freedom. It's, um, even from a training perspective and not just a viewing perspective that provides a tremendous amount of value to um, like what would have been the traditional way of watching film or something like that. By the way, six degrees of freedom, just first, first hear through on that one. That's a nice little tagline. Yeah. I don't know if you thought about that. It did not. Soar six degrees of freedom. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty fucking good. Yeah. That sounds good. Yeah, you're going to use that next week. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Just give me a little TM on the bottom. <laughs> All right. Yeah. That's just, going in just an email. email. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'm trying to wrap my head around this because that's far beyond what I actually thought. And when I was talking to a couple people before this podcast who were asking me who was coming in, and I'm like, this fucking master of the universe is coming in here and here's what he's doing. I told them that your vision was to put a football game on my coffee table with no bitrate problems, full compression, and and basically as if you're watching it on TV, but instead it's 3D right here and you can watch it where you want. I didn't realize that A, you pretty much can do this right now already, and B, it's far beyond that from a customization standpoint. It's not like, all right, I'm buying a 
12 inch by 18 inch board to be able to watch this it's like no if i want it 12 inches it's 12 if i want it 12 feet it's 12 feet that's nuts yeah so so there are going to be some some big challenges scaling (laughs) it beyond like so so right now the optimal the optimal environment is like 20 foot by 20 foot right like a 20 foot by 20 foot box you can put musicians you can put um you can do live events. You can't quite do a live boxing event. And and I think where the challenges are in boxing, and these are some of the things that we're working on now. It's, oh, that's your max. Yeah. So so right okay. now we're at 20 foot by 20 foot. Okay. Could okay. we, it, to be fair though, we haven't, we have not tested it bigger. I, I'm sure that we could. I think, I think the answer is adding cameras and we know that we can scale the number of cameras and still stream over um, modern networks because that's what we built for. Like that was the goal from the beginning. Um, so, so I think like when you think about boxing, if they're fighting or, or even UFC, great example, like they roll around a little bit, they wrestle, they get on the ground. There's going to be times where like they're, they're on top of each other and there's not much space between or, or a little bit of space and capturing depth information in those tight areas is really tough with only four cameras, right? So you'll have to scale the number of cameras, play around with the placement, and figure out what works best. So Do, that's the kind of stuff that we're doing. Now you got me thinking on that, though. Mm-hmm. Is there technology available right now, maybe not even available, but in the thought process that you could integrate into what you're doing where, let's say in that scenario, you have two guys in a cage in the UFC rolling around on the ground, and with the cameras... With the example you gave, you see a lag because it doesn't pick up where one guy's foot is because you literally can't see it on the camera. Have you thought about being able to integrate technology that has sensors, meaning you would have sensors on the mat that then feel for weight and physics? Well, I'm I'm going outside my (laughs) range right now, so bear with me. But have feel for like weight and physics distributions that could then say, oh, if the camera in real time, the camera didn't pick up that there's a foot there, but we feel that foot there. So the camera knows that that foot had a rendering that it already captured. And now it's just going to put it there. That is, that's interesting. Not something that I thought about. You you just got something. You just got something from me. I win for today. Yeah, that's That's uh, something. And and it's kind of like a it's it's a unique, um, it's a unique problem uh, be, because it's not that weird um, for for something to not be picked up by a two D camera, um, it, it, or it's not as it doesn't feel as weird. Maybe it's the best way to yeah. say it. For 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 three D, like it would be very strange to just cut off like a piece of somebody's shin, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like just a piece of it, because you might still be able to see the back, but like the front of somebody's ankle, just like gone. It's like the video yeah. games when they lag and you see yeah, the funny yeah. one where the guy runs yep. through the other guy. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so, and, and it kind of, when you have too many of those things, it starts to lose. It's like, because mm-hmm. uh, ultimately, like we're going towards what will be lifelike. So, so if you have too many of those, um, things happen that you can't account for, then um, it, it loses its like lifelike feeling. Um, yeah. And, and I think 
so one of the things that we're playing around with too are like machine learning and and AI uh, components to like fill in uh, holes that like it might not be picked up by a camera at that point. And um, so we'll see. It's it's going to evolve uh, rapidly. Um, I'm just going to yeah. ask this quickly. Yep. Just because you're saying a million things that I'm like, oh, let's go with that. Let's talk about that. Let's two months from now. I want you coming back in here. You down? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Man. Good. Because there's a lot we're not going to get to today. And yeah. I'm not even going to touch some of the things you just said. But <laughs> in that vein, yep. with AI, how much of you heading into this space, like when you were first looking at this after you exit with the IP in the last company and coming to this and saying, all right, we want to go into VRAR because that's our sweet spot. How much were you thinking about oh, here's what's happening with artificial intelligence and here's what the world is going to look like as a result of that. So here's how we're going to have to integrate it in whatever we end up doing here. Or did it just kind of organically come together where you're like, oh, okay, that's how it's going to fit in. Yeah, I, th I think it was it was pretty organic. Um, and we're not using much right now. Um, there, there are clear areas where we say like, okay, machine learning would really help this. Um, but for, for the most part, we, we haven't needed much. Um, there was, there were a few things that early on we said, if, if we can't solve it the way that we would like to, then the next n natural, um, I, I guess, try would be to kind of simulate what would be seen if there was a camera there. Mm. Um, and that would be using some sort of machine learning, like training a neural network with mm -hmm. series of 3D models and then uh, kind of like knowing exactly what pair of jeans that person was wearing and like what, what color and what, what the 3D um, portion that's missing looks like and then filling it in. Um, but uh, right now we, we're, not, we're not using too much. Um, yeah, we, we have some like, fun research projects that we're working on but yeah um yeah other than that and are you guys like where are you right now funding wise and in in, in the stage of the company because you have clients you obviously have income you've had this company now for three years you have a team you're you're where philly san francisco and australia <laughs> yeah we have so we're doing the whole distributed teams thing right now yeah. um which is it's different i think one thing I'll say about that, I think it's uh, you kind of have to like either go all in or not because running I, – I, I can see it now and we're not huge. Um, being I can see it being a challenge uh, growing and like keeping culture great and keeping people happy. And it, it's nice not having to have everybody in the office. But I think there's probably a happy medium there where you mm. have like, like um, almost like cells. So like we can we can have a small office in X location where a a group of people will go to, and that is a cell of this greater picture. Um, I think that's it, it. Probably looks something like that um, in the future. But for right now, it's it's kind of like a distributed um, right. <laughs> where wherever anybody is from or. Um, where they grew up if they were moving out of the Bay Area or moving out of New York or people are kind of all over the place right now. But yeah, um, yeah so we have um, we have some people in Canada. 
We have some mm. people in uh, the East Coast, from DC to Philly, New York, um, one in Miami, one in Australia, or two, yeah, one, soon to be two in Australia, um, one in London. So it, it's kind of, and the, the worst thing about it, um, because this is, it's relatively new. Like the overseas um, people have been recent um, and they've all, they all came from here too, which is kind of crazy. Like they were all in Palo Alto or New York city at one point and then like pre COVID and now they're like back home overseas. Oh, okay. Gotcha, yeah. Gotcha. Like, and the time zones are just Holy crap. Yeah. Because Australia, where he is, is he's in Perth. So that's 13 hours ahead. <laughs> right now, 13 hours ahead. And then you, London's five hours ahead. Yeah. And then we got- uh, San Fran. Yeah. He's three hours behind. Yeah. And we have one guy in Boulder. He's two back. <laughs> uh, one in Austin. It's just like, it's a it's Your a email mess. subject lines are long. Oh my God. Yeah. 4 p.m. Central, yep. 3 p.m. West- yeah. Whatever fucking time Australia. <laughs> yeah. Like which one is MST again? Please get like, you're going to have to just color code them. This one is this part of the country. Oh my God. I'm about to put a map up in my office. Yeah. It's uh, it gets a little bit messy, but uh, the team is, a, a, they're yeah. all troopers. It's burgeoning, man. Yeah. But the first question in there, like the funding process, where yeah. what, what yeah, stage yeah. is this company at? Yeah. So we're, um, We've raised some money. Um, we're we just uh, are, are in the process of closing a uh, like an extension round on a um, uh, I guess what you could call a seed round. Um, so we're doing a a, ser a formal Series A and uh, Q1. Um, we've we've raised like uh, kind of like off names, so to speak. I, I know there's. There's kind of like these blurred lines between what is what, but um, nowadays you have like like pre-seed, seed. Yeah. There are seed extensions or seed A, seed B. Um, people are raising like A1s, A2s. Mm -hmm. It's like all over the place. But um, yeah, so I, I would say we are like just pre-A. Um, but you guys have income. And, and we're mature for a, for a yeah. seed company. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, because I mean, if if you were just putting it in the regular box, it's like seed is no income. We have the idea and it's <laughs> it's designed. Yeah, A is okay. We have revenue now. B is like we're fucking huge. C is we're a unicorn, right? Yeah, and and I think that's that's like one of those. Um, there are very blurred lines there um, because I've seen uh, like like for instance, I know um, a buddy of mine just raised a. $10 million uh, seed round. I think you called it a seed at a hundred million dollar pre-money um, or nope, scratch that hundred million dollar post. I think it was. And um, they were pre-product. So he had a hundred million dollar valuation yeah. after the round pre-product pre-product. Pre yeah. Raised 10 million. What did he invent? New human bodies? 90. No, it is uh it's it's a um, it's it's like a they they do some stuff with government. Um, oh yeah yeah oh but that. but like again pre product and he's um, he's a second time founder, um, but they they called it a seed. 
in mm-hmm. in that situation, usually that's a Series A. Yeah. Even though it's like pre-product, that is a very large round for like a, a seed company and a very high valuation for yeah. a seed. Um, yeah. Yeah. The I, the lines there are pretty. They're pretty blurry. And now there's like uh, super growth rounds, like Series E. Yeah, it's uh, like G, all kinds of stuff. It's like trying to stay private as long as you can. And yeah. What's the, and that's the question a lot of people have. Outside the game, a lot of people wonder, well, how much do these companies want to go public? Because then they have to have a quarterly report and meet certain standards and innovation suffers in a way there. Yeah. But also, if they know they're going to go public, why do so many companies wait? It's this common thing. Now, on the public side, and me coming from a background in finance, it's it's obvious. You get a ton of capital going public. It, yeah. y- you just can't – the exponential value of the capital you get when you put out public shares cannot be replicated on the private side. Yeah. We know that. But whether it be Uber, even Facebook back in the day, insert tech company here. We just saw a very good one with Airbnb. A lot of these companies – say they're going public and they don't do it for like three years. They don't do it for four years. And sometimes they get fucked from that. So how do you, because I feel like you have a lot of knowledge on this from when we talked on the phone and and actually mapping out like, hey, here's the type of round we would want to do. Here's the amount we'd look for. Here's what we would want to do there. And here's when we would want to go public. How do you chart that out? Or is it just kind of like you get hit with a lot of things and you go with the flow? So so I think the the question of like, to IPO or not to IPO is a question that like you 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 kind of start to get a um, an idea of this somewhere around like Series B I want to say um, and and keep in mind like I've never taken a public uh, company public so so like I'm probably not the best person to ask there but I do have quite a few friends that have like been through that process. Um, and it, and it sounds like it starts to come up in board conversations somewhere between like the series B, um, series C area where, where you can start to like map that out and mm-hmm. say, is this something that makes sense? Are there likely acquirers? Are, are we getting offers already? Yeah. Like what, yeah. what does that kind of stuff look like? Because, um, once you start to get to that point too, your burn is growing, because usually you'll still have a net burn, um, and define burn. You and I know, but define yeah. burn for people. Yeah. So, so like burn in early stage companies is quite literally the money that you're burning per month, mm-hmm. right? Especially pre revenue, like it's it's just how much am I spending per month? Um, when when you start to have revenue, your expenses will probably be higher than your revenue for for a period of time and the difference between the two is your net burn. So um, when you have revenue and a million dollars goes further than when you have zero revenue. So Mm. um, the net burn is like the important one later. Um, Burn in general is important pre-revenue. But um, yeah, I I think like your burn is growing dramatically um, to the point where you have to start to think about like, um, is there an exit in sight? Um, are, are we going to hit profitability and push toward an IPO? Like what, what does this look like in the next, um, cause fundraising is cyclical. It's usually like 12 to 18 months, every 12 to 18 months, you're 
raising money, if mm-hmm. not sooner than that. Yep. Um, so otherwise you'll just literally run out of money. Yeah. Um, yeah. It only lasts a certain amount of time. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I think at that at that point you're you're starting to try it out. Anything earlier, it's it's like extremely difficult. Like I I, I have an idea of like what I would want to do, right? Um, and I can see a clear path to get there, but I know it's going to take like twists and turns mm-hmm. along the way. So we'll see. But yeah, wild. It's just it, I'm I'm nerding out right now because there's so many things that you get to see that you're like in the middle of that we and the rest of the world kind of have to look at from the outside <laughs> and study what yeah. goes on. But being in the middle of a big round like you are, what is your thought process on this is the amount I'm going to need and here's who I'm going to get it from? How do you go to identify that? Like, how do you say, all right, this project, I think these venture capital firms would be interested in. And the obvious first level answer to that is that you're looking at companies and that have previous investments in spaces similar to yours, but there's a lot of them. So how do you figure out, like, I want to talk to this guy, but I don't want to talk to that guy. So, so this is like a difficult thing for founders and first time founders, I feel like get this, um, they, they kind of just like get thrown to the wolves when they go to fundraise for the first time. It's like, like, how do I navigate this whole situation? Um, so, so first off, it's driven on relationships, like like mm-hmm. almost a hundred percent on relationships. Like if you just reach out, you're probably not gonna um, see results, right? right? So, so you want to find like warm introductions, and with that comes like uh, uh, somebody that knows that person, right? So if I'm asking for an, an introduction to, I don't know, we'll use Peter Thiel as an example. Like the person making the introduction has to know him pretty well, which means they either have worked with him or um, ha- have been on the other side of a deal or or something. They're they're in that circle and they should have a, a like a general understanding at, at minimum of how that person is to work with. Um, so I think it's like it's two part. It's a identifying who those people are, and then b talking to as many founders. And as many other venture partners as you possibly can to get an idea of like, what is this person going to look like? How, how much support am I really going to get? Especially with somebody like, um, like Teal or um, Mark Andreessen or like these are the, the big brand names and, and like uh, we'll call them like the, the – like a lot of people see Mark as like the LeBron of venture – Right? Yeah. So it's team um, Illuminati. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you may not, if you are going to need a lot of support at an early stage, like you might not want him to be the partner that you're working with. Yeah. Cause you probably won't get as much attention as if you're working with a different partner at the same firm where in a year or two, when you're a $200 million business, now Mark's going to be more involved because the, the situations are going to be more complex. He's been through that circle a little bit more yada yada so so i think that's like um just a couple of the high notes but um at least that's that's how i approach it like going into this round that's it's exactly what i'm doing it's talk to as many founders as you possibly can get an idea of of who um who has worked with who and what they like what they don't like about them 
Um, what are they like in board meetings? What are they like in horrible situations? Like that, to me, that says a lot. Like, yeah. did they uh, pour gas on it when you were on fire? Or did they uh, come help put out the fire with you? You don't look at these guys as dollar signs. You look at them the same way that you that they would look at you or other people yeah. coming in. You basically flip it on them. Yeah, and and to be fair, like there's there is cash anywhere. Like if it was just money that you needed, um, you you can get money from yeah. a million different places. Um, there's alt financing. There are um, wealth funds overseas. There's family offices. There mm-hmm. are venture funds. There's angel investors. There's there are a thousand places to find cash. It's it's the the strategic money that's like what you should be looking for. Yeah. Now, an obvious question here, and we'll get to COVID because I, that's that's some really important context just with what's happened in the tech space, and I want to talk about that. But an obvious question about how you've gone about so effectively doing this and networking with other founders and getting yourself in yeah. to the venture capital realms is – You've always been an East Coast guy. You've always sat like this is where you are. You're yeah. sitting in Philly in New York. You're not you're not out in Palo Alto. And one of the things we've always heard again pre-COVID because that's a separate <laughs> conversation is that you kind of got to go into the bubble there. You got to be in the middle of the shit and be in that cult environment. That's what some people call it. But yep. you you need to like you have to have boots on the ground. And you seem to have very effectively not had to do that or you've been able to do that effectively, I should say, without having to be there. How? How? That's how. Yeah. Well, so so two things. Uh, to be fair, I did spend a good amount of time out there. Um, and for a while, I was flying back and forth. I did lot. not know that. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, no. Okay. not. I, I was never there for longer than a month at a time. So like, I, I, it's not like I lived out there for Got a while. Um, I've had like apartments in, in San Francisco and stuff like that, but ne- I've never spent more than like a month, maybe two at, uh, at any given time. Um, mm. so, so I, I did build, um, a little bit of like a network out there. Um, but t- to be honest, like most of that you can do online too. Yeah. There, there are a lot of like physical or where a lot of like physical networking events that like you probably just wouldn't have been able to get access to the same kind of people. Um, like I can think of one. So this was actually in, in one of those like months that I was living in the city. Um, one night I, I grabbed food and I, I think it was on Eventbrite or something like that. And um, there was an event at Yelp that popped up. And I had a friend that worked at Yelp at the time reached out and said, hey, um, do you know what this is? And he's like, oh, I don't know. We do that kind of stuff all the time. Like, Just free food if you want. Just go. <laughs> I was like, okay, cool. I'll head over. Um, so I think it was me and one of my co-founders went over to the Yelp office. And like uh, Jeremy Stoppelman was just walking around. Had a couple of cool conversations. Like it is the, the people that outside of the bubble – are like um, the the tech gods, so to speak. They're just like the average person out there. They're they're everybody, and and they want to like have a conversation. Like like I could sit down and have this kind of conversation in a coffee shop with like almost any of them. So that's the one big benefit of being in Silicon Valley. It's like 
it's such a close knit community that once you've met, once you've met a couple of them and, and, um, can, can start to like build some of those relationships. It's just, you're not more than one degree from anybody like, like Elon. Great example. Like I have zero reason today to talk to Elon Musk. I am not more than one degree from Elon. Like I can think of like five or six people that know him really well. You just have no purpose. And, and it's that kind of thing where it's like, if I needed that contact, I have that. I've never, I've never met him. I've never like spent time in that, um, in that space, like just trying to get to Elon Musk. But through that network, like I'm sure I could have a conversation with him. Besides, um, besides Stoppelman, who's some of the coolest people you've sat with? Um, there's, uh, there's quite a few. Uh, Tim Draper is actually, mm. uh, yeah, Dra- Draper's really cool. Um, I'm trying to think. Uh, met Brian Chesky. That's Airbnb uh, guy. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, there, there's, uh, there's quite a few of them. I actually think ironically, and Tim Draper is probably not like the biggest name, definitely not the biggest name, but, um, Draper was like one of the cooler ones to just have a conversation with. He was wearing his Bitcoin tie. I remember that. <laughs> he was uh, early to that. Yeah. Yeah, he, he was. Early to that. Super bullish on Bitcoin. What, so, what do you think of that space? See, I've, I haven't spent much time in like the crypto world, um, Ironically, I was on Clubhouse the other day and uh, there was this really cool conversation around like insurance of crypto. On Ethereum? I'm not sure. Um, I just know in general, they were talking about kind of like how you have the FDIC on uh, like dollars, mm-hmm. like US notes, um, but we don't have much on the crypto side. Um, and, and how especially like the exchanges you're really trusting the exchange. Um, and if you don't vet them, you can end up in, in quite the situation um, because it does not work the same way that it does as a bank. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know that a lot of people know that, but it, they don't. I mean, if, if you have, if you have Coinbase get hacked, you're kind of screwed. Yeah. Because if, if they come in and, and they take your Bitcoin Bitcoin is not controlled by any government. Ethereum, not controlled by any government. And that's that's the upside of it. But this is where there's a little bit of a downside too because they can't just come in and say, all right, FDIC has got you insured up to yeah. X amount of Bitcoin. It doesn't exist. And people, and then there's also like the private key side where people look at taking ownership themselves. Well, you do that, A, you better know how to protect your key. Meaning, how do you not put it on an electronic platform that someone could hack into and get it? And B, you better not lose it because it's gone. I mean, they estimate, what, like 5%, 10% of the Bitcoin in circulation will never be seen because it got lost. Yeah, I mean, it's just pretty it's, wild. It's wild, man. So our director of engineering now, um, he was in, in a past life, um, did some consulting, security consulting on uh, online. And uh, this was like early Bitcoin days. I was in high school at the time. He was in high school. Um, and uh, He was consulting while he was in high school? 
I, yeah, I'm pretty sure it was high school. It was either high school or like freshman year of college. God, you somewhere people, in that you area. people know some different people. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so he was doing some uh, some consulting with some some online friends, uh, and they paid him in Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. This was like the really early days. Of so Bitcoin. he was on he was on the Silk Road. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> he was he was doing some uh, what we'll call white hat hacking. Yeah, he's, uh, he's selling blow to somebody in like <laughs> South Korea. Yeah, so so in exchange for his uh, his uh, we'll call it security. So hacking is like a type of security mm-hmm. or involves security in some way. Um, he was paid in Bitcoin, and uh, we did the math the other day. I think it's like somewhere around one hundred and eighty million would have been worth today he uh oh. yeah at the time he was like well fuck this like i, I gotta oh. get rid of this because like i just need the cash <laughs> yeah oh no. I'm, I'm i'm pretty sure he might kill me for this one if i'm wrong but i'm pretty sure he bought like a quarter of weed or something on silk road and then just took the rest in cash and uh, we always joke with him like that was the most expensive weed you've ever bought it <laughs> <laughs> better have better have been a hundred million dollar high because uh, oh man, I really hope your company yeah. goes all the way. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Every time the price goes oh. up, and and he looks at it because I'm pretty sure he owns a bunch of Bitcoin now that he did not get for like a dollar uh, per Bitcoin. Um, so he's he's doing all right, but still. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yikes! That is man. a tough one to swallow. It is a tough one yeah. to swallow, and and the guys. I think we said this earlier, talking in a different context, but. Some of the guys who were the earliest in the space were the Winklevoss twins. Yeah. They were buying it down at $10 when they learned about it, and they were still buying it to the point that back during the height of 2017, it was revealed that they own more than 1% of the global Bitcoin in circulation. And you can bet your ass they own more than that now because they oh, were yeah. buying every day. And it's it, actually, though, they're an interesting case study for the groupthink that can occur in these bubbles. And this is something I, I definitely want to ask you about because you're networking with and building relationships with serious people and also people that I've never heard of or people have never heard of who are doing yeah. crazy cool shit out there. And again, I didn't know you were out there so much, but it's obviously been very effective and it's it's gotten you to this point. And now you're going through these funding rounds with a tangible product and raising serious, serious money and talking to serious people as a result of this. But the downside to Silicon Valley and the greater community around it is that these people exist in a world that they know and no one else sees, and that's the reality that they believe to be true. Meaning they think that we know everything that's going on, so we have all the answers, and here's how things go, and we're going to decide what happens next. And it's like everyone else is a little bit of a simulation, and that's the hatred they get online. That's the stereotype they get. There's a modicum of truth, though, in the fact that it's very culty and that it it creates that environment of, oh, there's us and then there's everyone else. And I was reading a book recently by Ben Mesrick called Bitcoin Billionaires, which Ben Mesrick is the guy who wrote – it was a different title, but the book that became The Social Network, the movie. Yeah. And he's written, he wrote the book that became the movie 21. Like he, He's a great writer, written, written a lot of things. But Bitcoin Billionaires was an unplanned spinoff of The Social Network, and it focuses on the Winklevoss twins, who he obviously 
built a relationship with while he wrote the first book. And then once they got into Bitcoin, he goes, oh, shit, I want to tell this story. And one of the things that they ran into that was so fucking crazy to me is, first of all, these guys got really screwed. They, They got really, really screwed. And they still got a big payout. And they also put their emotions aside and asked for their payout in Facebook stock. So they made a lot more money than their payout would have been. Yeah. But they opened up a venture capital fund or basically something like that out, that operated out of the East Coast. And they were doing the whole bi-coastal thing, I guess, kind of like you and going mm-hmm. out there all the time. And one of the problems they ran into, I guess this is like 2010, 2011, was that they would get to the final part of a deal to invest in a new project And then suddenly the guys they were investing in who knew who they were and were so excited to meet them and talk with them would come back and be like, oh, we're oversubscribed, sorry, (laughs) you know, whatever. And they're like, what the fuck? No one will take our money. So they finally get to the final stage with some guy who had some idea out there and they fly out to Palo Alto to sign the deal and he comes to the table with them and he goes, he was actually scary. He's like, guys, I I can't, I'm sorry, I, I can't work with you. And they're like, what the fuck? And this guy just straight up was honest. And he said, look around. They looked around and he said, what is the closest company to where this restaurant we're in right now is? And they said, Facebook. And he goes, exactly. They don't like you there. <laughs> and they're like, oh, so you can't take our money because we're the Winklevoss and that might screw you. And he said, yep. And the dude paid for the beers and said, I'm sorry, guys. I wish you luck. Wouldn't even take the $20 beers. And the connotation was that anyone's watching and they're going to say, ooh, Jim there took money from the Winklevoss or was talking to the Winklevi or whatever. And And that's an extreme example. But this is the type of stuff that you see it from the outside. And part of these products that are coming out of Silicon Valley are things that we talked about. They give they give us convenience. They give us incredible value. They move the human race forward. It's all true. But you also need for adoption and for the health of society, you need people to trust what's happening there. You need people to feel like their best interests, like the general public's best interests are at heart in Silicon Valley. And yet when you have this this group think that says there's us and here's the order of business and here's how things go. And if you don't do that, you're fucked. You run the risk of creating two separate worlds. And I think in a lot of ways, and I don't need to continue to go too far out, but we're seeing the downsides of that, especially during COVID and some of the public sentiments and around the election and all that stuff. And so you being a guy in the middle of that world, how much awareness do you have of that concept? And how much do you think of your product as, hey, yes, I'm in Silicon Valley. I I work in that realm, but... I am trying to bring something to the general public and I want to make sure at the end of the day, I have their trust more than anything. Yeah. Um, it's a loaded question. I'm sorry. but No. Yeah. So, so I think it is, um, it's, they kind of oper- operate in, in like a vacuum sometimes. Um, it, it's like, this is, um, this is our, this is our world. This is correct, um, and that can be um, that, that can be like detrimental, e- even just to startups and founders. Um, I, I've seen like quite a few times um, things like that happen, mm-hmm. um, and, and there's also like like the the thing with the uh, Winklevoss twins. Does 
that story doesn't that doesn't surprise me. Mm-hmm. Um, th- there are like clear grudges and and clear like it, it, it's almost like um, Axelrod in Billion uh, Billions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's billions. the show. Um, it, it's it's billionaires with like like grudges, right? <laughs> like just um, ego. Yeah, yeah, and, and like he's in his own world. Um, I, I think that happens a little bit in Silicon Valley. It's also why like like Teal is a good example. Um, he saw this. I, th- I think this was 2018 or or 19. Um, he he like denounced Silicon Valley and mm-hmm. and moved to LA. I th- I think that was part of it. Um, there there was the whole Gawker thing, and and I was I was kind of surprised that like the Silicon Valley culture didn't um, accept Teal a little bit more, but, but he is, he, he challenges the, the status quo. Gawker was the whole Kogan thing. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So that was where was Peter Teal's gay and he wasn't publicly yeah. gay, but Gawker had outed him. I think in like Oh seven or Oh eight with some article without his permission. Yeah. And then Something happened with Hulk Hogan where he was on a sex tape or something. So Hulk was pissed and Teal behind the scenes came yeah. in and funded the lawsuit and then crashed Gawker, right? Yeah. yeah and I I met um, the – so so a, a friend of mine and somebody that's involved in uh, my business is really close with uh, one of one of Peter's uh, close uh, – friends and that whole situation that he, that he had help on the legal side of that. Mm. Um, so, so he was pretty deeply involved in the, the whole, uh, Hulk Hogan situation and, um, and in Gawker in general. Um, and, and it was basically, he, he went to Peter and said, um, I, I have a way I, I can take, I can take down Gawker. <laughs> Um, and it was just like a, okay, okay. Sounds goes, great. Bet. Yeah. <laughs> done. I'm in. And here's the and, check. Uh, yeah. So, so I think that's like, um, well, that, that's a good example of like, uh, and a lot of people said at the time, like, it, this is just a billionaire throwing his weight around to, mm-hmm. to destroy a, a media outlet because he didn't like something that they wrote about. I actually think that Gawker was like pretty detrimental. Um, I agree. Yeah. So, so like, I'm, I'm not too concerned about that, but it does go to show you. And, and again, I'm, I'm a fan of Peter Thiel. I'm, I'm a fan of, uh, the person in the middle there that I know. Um, I, I like them. I, I think they're, um, they're great, but, but it, it does, uh, it, it does show you a little bit about like the, the power and, and the, um, if you look at Silicon Valley, there's there's a lot of that that's like not contrarian thought that's not like uh, contested as much. It, it just kind of happens and, and outside of Silicon Valley doesn't see it as much. And so you're saying that that was – Peter Thiel's a guy who has been, as you put it, openly critical of that yeah. environment and has literally removed himself from it physically in some ways. But also still – as someone who is a master of the universe there with unlimited resources, there is a level to which even he was like, all right, I got wronged here and, and I'm going to go take care of it and maybe isn't thinking of the slippery slope. The the one place where I will definitely defend him is that, I mean, Gawker did 
one of the scummiest things oh, yeah. you could ever do to a human. And yeah. I think maybe where Peter could have done it differently is to just really go all in on going after them for that himself rather than waiting on the other thing to, to fund it. But that's a tough one just because yes there is a slippery slope there you're right and yeah. i don't know that he was thinking about that but shit if i were in his position forget that i'm a billionaire and like have all this power it's like you feel like that's the right thing to do yeah i, I probably would have done it like way more publicly yeah. um, and i understand why he did not and 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 it's it's one of those things too like like he was openly gay in silicon valley mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. it, it it wasn't that like he told nobody it was that, like, he chose not to make it a public spectacle. Right. Um, and they did. Uh, so so that was, like, the, I guess, kind of the core there. Um, but, yeah, no, I, I probably would have made a big scene out of it. I, again, understand why he did, and it was probably, like, uh, just subject matter that, like, did not need to be a big public event. Um, although, in some ways, it kind of did anyway. But, Yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, the the entire concept, and I'm I'm very, I'll admit, I'm very obsessed overall, not just with Silicon Valley, with everything, with the concept of groupthink. I think it's a, I think it is a scourge on our society across almost every level of culture, and yeah. I think the internet, which is supposed to be this open forum of freedom of communication, has actually pushed us in the opposite direction in a lot of ways with that, because people are afraid to disagree with the loudest voices who get the most attention. Yeah. And look, the worst example we see is in our politics because we see the most extreme views on either side of the aisle get all the noise and the Pareto principle. They get 20% of the people make 80% of the noise. And that's what we think the reality then is. And that's how we start getting into these conversations like you got Russ Limbaugh coming out and saying, oh, we might have a civil war tomorrow. It's not great right now, but it's not there. But the fact that we're even saying those things is because of that. And then you see ideas get shut down. And again, ideas are – they're the foundation of what makes us human, but they are the literal foundation of innovation and yeah. moving forward and doing things. And so I think just sometimes with Silicon Valley, it's counterintuitive to be like that because the entire community is built on – <laughs> they they say it like we want to push forward the, the human race you heard me say that earlier yep. and and you can't do that when it's like no, no 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 this is how things are we don't challenge that yep it's it's problematic but one, how do you how do you build something that changes changes the world in in a vacuum like yeah it's like taking one perspective and building something that's supposed to account for all four or whatever. The That's situation. a great way of putting yeah. it. It's like, it's brutal. <laughs> That's a great way of putting it. But yeah. they, look, they have had a very, just looking on it on a short-term basis, they have had a very good year in the broader tech community for new ideas and innovation, ironically, <laughs> what we just said, just because of what's happened in society and with the pandemic and how that just completely changed our reality. And look, you saw how quickly people adapted to this thing getting used to zoom within like two days and and how much we learned that jobs we would have never thought of that could be remote actually were which i think a lot of us knew they could yeah. be but it was like 
Gen X and and the baby boomers still in charge in a lot of ways, and even some millennials, they weren't thinking like that stuff was possible, and then they're forced to do it, and now they're like, oh, oh, yeah, duh, it was. But when this started, everyone felt like the world was ending, and no, everyone's thinking like the stock market's going to crash, all this shit's going to happen. Oh my god, are we going to get it if if we touch anything? You know, there's all this hysteria. But what did we see? We saw immediately Amazon and Netflix go like this, right? That yep. was one, that was one I got wrong because I'm thinking, all right, people aren't going to be spending as much money, and <laughs> that for, that turned out to be false. And then we saw very quickly, even after some dips, all the tech companies, broadly speaking, just go through the roof. Yeah. And that's the public side, but the private side saw explosions too. I was getting whispers by like March 25th, even. From like some of my guys in Austin, Texas, like, yo, there's some shit happening here. And so the opportunities that came in early on have exploded and created some projects that are now unicorns. And they've also completely disrupted and ended some industries, which now are never coming back as a result of the whole thing. But I could imagine for you guys in particularly, it's been good for everyone in tech, as I said, this had to be really, really good for your opportunity just because now you have a whole bunch of different industries and business that are coming to you and going oh shit we're not doing in-person stuff and even when this thing ends there's going to be new realities that people now expect things that aren't in person you guys are going to create those experiences yeah how much of that is true and i mean what what's your year been like yeah so so it, it was happening before COVID. um mm. we were seeing the shift and and we were helping push the shift, but COVID sure as shit accelerated it. Yeah, um, and and it it helped a lot. Um, it also put like kind of a spotlight on how we do some of the things that we do, right? Like, even live events, um, or uh, a, a good example is advertising. Like the value of two D advertising has been diminishing. Um, the value of advertising in in podcasts has been going up engagement is is better there but 2d is diminishing right so so what are the advertisers looking for something that's more engaging um they're trying to mix uh, uh something that's live with 2d content and with something else that can drive a deeper engagement in a lot of cases that's audio um, in some cases it's not i think in a lot of cases spatial could do it uh, or, or like immersive AR, VR. Um, in some cases, it can't. But um, that is something that like now is at the forefront. It's like I can't do live events in person. 2D is good, but people can skip through ads. People can like there are overall the quality of engagement on an advertisement in 2D is going down. So. How can we find a new place to serve an ad that might get a better engagement? And and one of the things that we've been saying in, in 3D is like you can actually make the ad an experience. Like I can have a Coca-Cola bear running around in the background um, and like in my living room. Um, and it's an ad. It is clearly the Coca-Cola bear. But like if I can like pet him and his ears wiggle or something – like, Come on. Yeah. That's a little bit more engaging than just like a Coca-Cola bottle spinning 
and showing you the logo. And, and that I, would like, would that require you using as the end user receiving the ad? Would that require you using a phone to see the yeah you, you phone AR. tablet headset whatever you're viewing holographic display like th- that little little Coca-Cola polar bear is there you can uh, I don't know tap on his ears and make him make him wiggle or something like that is as stupid as it sounds that's and, pretty engaging that's pretty cool and some of your clients though are in like live events though too right yeah so you're working are you working with any music companies yeah we are um, are you allowed to say uh, I won't I'm not I won't say the name but the the one company that we're working with pretty closely now um they build experiences for all of the major record labels. So, um a lot of the major record labels in the next like two quarters will be customers. Um and our uh what do you mean build experiences? So so they create like AR experiences right now. Um just with computer-generated content, not live content. Um, so, yeah. Would, um thinking outside the box here, because I'm also thinking that you're talking about someone different than I was thinking. The one, because the, I don't want to say the name, if this was it, but you were working with some company that handles, like, concert tours? Yeah. Is that right? Is that yeah, the one you're talking about? No, I was, I was talking about one. somebody else, but yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, well, you know what? I, so I, I will say the, the name. I don't know that it matters. Um, one of them is Filter, yeah. Another one is Genies. Okay. Um, yeah. And th- those two companies are creating like avatars um, that are pretty cool, pretty engaging. There was actually a Genies Justin Bieber avatar in Times Square the other day. Um, so, so they're you just see they're Justin doing some Bieber. pretty cool stuff. Yeah. Like yeah. performing? Yeah, but it's like a computer-generated avatar of him instead of like actually him as 3D. So, um, yeah, that's in the, the street kind of transition. Like standing in the street. Or? I think I think he was on a 2D screen. So you're okay. looking at a 3D piece of content on a 2D screen. A little bit less engaging, but right. So, mm. yeah, we're, we're we're kind of like across the board. And again, it, it goes back to the whole platform thing. The the best thing for us to do. Um, is to to make it as easy as possible, whether you are like a production company or um, a live event company or uh, just a developer that wants to use the, the software, um, be able to go to a centralized location and, and play with the software and uh, create an experience using Volumetric and then distribute that experience via Weblink, via Snapchat, via your own app with an SDK that we give you, like anything you want to create, do it here. And then for, from an enterprise perspective, we just license, uh, we'll license that platform and get out of kind of like the just pure compression licensing. You said somewhere in there though, you were talking about live versus like pre-recorded or yeah. whatever in 2D versus 3D within that. So I'm just thinking of examples I know. But the first time I saw some crazy shit with a live event that I guess was a pre-produced, pre-recorded actual thing that came out was back in Coachella in like 2015 where they brought out Tupac yeah. to as a hologram to perform with Snoop Dogg and I think Eminem might have been there too. Yeah. Was that what? What's was that 3D or what's? 
So that that was not actually 3D. Um, that that was like a trick on the eye. Um, mm. it served served the purpose, and I, I think it was really cool. Um, I forget the name of the company that did that, but um, I think I actually uh, talked to the guys that did it. Um, the the production, um, the, the I guess the way that you view that is by like there's like a distance that you need to be away from the from the thing, and it's like projecting something, and it makes it. It gives off this feeling that it's 3D, um, even though it's it's actually 2D. Um, but it's pre-recorded. Yeah, it's pre-recorded. Yeah, it wasn't um, live. Yeah, no. So so I think they just took like some sort of 2D video that already existed and then made a 2D but hologram-looking uh, experience out of it. So Snoop Dogg standing next to him could tell that it was not. Yeah, yeah, like he knew. Interesting. Yeah, but you as the viewer did not. So, yeah, so like it, it worked pretty real, well. Man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He came up. I got the goosebumps. So it was, yeah, that was so crazy. so like we're getting to the point where that will be real. Mm. Um, and I think we're getting there quicker than uh, than we think. What about competition though? Competition for us. Yep. So like what are you facing? So so right now there there are some. There's some offline companies doing capture. Um, one in particular is uh, creating these like large scale captures. It's a company called AI. Um, it's similar to what Microsoft is doing. Um, the the problem there is just that like the amount of data that comes out of it is is ridiculous. Um, so there's no way to deliver that in real time. Um, the quality is good. I'll, I'll say that like it looks good. But there is no way to deliver that uh, in real time or, or uh, stream on demand cheap, I'll say. They don't um, have your compression? No. And, and from how they approached it, they would need to rethink the entire process um, to be able to, to kind of get anywhere near where we are. So, um, yeah, there, there are a couple of, co- couple of companies trying it. Um, Microsoft, for example, is charging somewhere around like $30,000 per day um, to capture. (laughs) So you go into a Microsoft studio and you create a piece of volumetric video, costs you about 30 grand, somewhere in there, um, and you get like three minutes of content, um, which is just pretty crazy. And then you get this huge file mess that you got to do something with, um, and you just pay 30 grand. So even for ad agencies or like live event companies uh, or somebody trying to do a promo with something like that, it's super expensive. The files are huge. It's, it's like kind of a non-starter. So um, we looked to check all of those boxes. We've done so, so far. So it's, you are, you are the man in the arena with this. It's really, you're on to something here and, I mean, it's obvious to tell that just based on some of the money coming in and funding I mean, and where it's coming from. It's pretty clear people believe in you, and it's also pretty clear through the clientele as well. But the reason I say I, I want to bring you in here again is because there's so many broad topics to go over with a guy like you yeah. and talk about what's happening in our world, not even just with COVID, but yeah. how these things go. I mean, 
we started this conversation talking about the next period of disruption and you defining it as spatial and, and what that decade looks like. But there are other things that that's like kind of the crown jewel in a lot of ways of things we're going to have to get used to in the sense that we're going to have to get used to the idea that people aren't physically here, which we're kind of bootloading that with Zoom and being away from each other. But you're going to take that to the technological level. But there are a lot of Pandora's boxes we're facing as a result of things like this. And you've touched on today, like artificial intelligence and people throw around these buzzwords. They don't know what the fuck they mean as far as like what the context is, how deep it goes. And maybe some people can think about their data a little bit and, Oh, I'm giving up a lot, but they don't understand machine learning. They don't understand how data is used to do that and what the repercussions of machines to get smarter and smarter are going to be. So at least before I let you out of here today, one of the things I did want your opinion on is how much do you think about a world with the singularity and how close do you think something ridiculous like that is? And before you answer it, just as a broad level, when I say singularity, for people listening, I'm talking about where we are just and it's a generalization we are at equal with machines in the sense that we've crossed the chasm where machines have the ability to do pretty much everything a human does at a higher level without the ability to maybe sense and feel love and stuff like that but do you think about that a lot and and where are we on on the spectrum of that coming into the realm of possibility um that's a that is a very good question. I think we are probably closer than a lot of people think, um, but but I'm actually not as concerned as a lot of people either. Mm. Um, I, I I think um, I think there's there is a big focus on like responsible use of of AI, and um, I know Elon's doing a lot here too, um, but. I think in general, um, I, th- I think it's a, um, it's kind of like a Pandora's box, um, and and we have to understand what we're opening, um, and and be careful um, with how we use it, because there, there's uh, so you're talking specifically on AI, right? Or, or more than anything, because yeah. that's that is the boot. Anything involving the quote-unquote singularity. Let's yeah. be honest, that's the main bootloader to it. Yeah. So, so the idea that like a machine can outlearn a, a human and and perform human tasks and emotion and uh, yes. et cetera faster and better than uh, a human. I mean. In a sense, they already do that. Yeah. But I'm saying, and I think you're on the same page. I just want to make sure. I'm saying, where they're able to then combine that with their own, their ability to make their own decisions. Yeah. Well, I think it's like that interesting point where like you've taught it to make the right decision, and it starts to learn that the right decision is either uh, not a decision that you gave it the choice to make, or yeah, and that's where it kind uh, it, it kind of gets. Um, out out of control a little. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I I think um, and and I'm not as much in the AI machine learning world, um, but but I think in general, 
less concerned. I actually have a little bit of faith in humanity there. I, mm. I actually think that we're going to use it responsibly for the most part. There's There are a lot of ways to weaponize it. Um, and I think it's going to be a big threat. Um, will it be, will it be used like that? I, I'm not sure. Um, that's why I keep that art right there to think of it yeah. that way. Cause well, could, yeah, cause know. that's what it, it could be. <laughs> yeah. Well, people think of the first real test of humanity was the atomic bomb and the nuclear bomb. And they're like, oh, we're going to blow all of ourselves up. And to, hypothetically that could happen anytime, but we kind of got through that. You yeah. know, and I have hope that that's exactly what will happen with machines, too. The difference is the atomic bomb couldn't blow itself up. A human had to hit the yeah. button. That's the one big thing here that I'm like, hmm. You know, if there are guys like you mentioned, like Elon, who are sounding the alarm here, but you get the wrong people who are just so stuck in their own mind and their own innovation to unlock some of these things because they're just forging ahead, you know, through no fault of their own. They're not trying to, but they hit the wrong area and boom, you let it out of the, you let the kite out of the bag. We don't know what some of this stuff looks like. Yeah. Um, have you ever read Super Intelligence by Bostrom? I have not. Oh, I, you would I've love that. I've heard from quite a few people though, that I needed to read it. Yeah. Re read. The, it's not even, I mean, you can definitely sift through things a lot faster than I can and, and appreciate it even way more than I could. But it's, I would still say for anybody, it's not the kind of book that you can kind of just sit down and read in one sitting yeah. and go through it. Because you really, this guy paints every possibility that you could possibly think of this guy's i mean we're playing checkers he's playing fucking something i yeah. don't know but he goes through all the potential outcomes good and bad and a lot of bad of machine learning and it's like oh boy the number of if this then that's that we have to take into account here yeah. to not fuck it up it's a lot it is um i get <laughs> I think in general, um, I have more faith in humanity in this area than I probably should, um, especially considering I generally do not. Um, but it, it, at least from an engineering perspective and, and from like a uh, – because we are still creating it. Um, to what degree it's on its own um already is debatable um so, so i'm not sure but but i have um i have faith in the at least on the engineering side that like we'll probably do what we can before it gets to that point um but i could be horribly wrong on that all right i'm gonna i'm gonna accept that for now because we're we'll I'll, I'll cut it there i we, we've been in here a while and, and my head hurts um <laughs> But we're going to come back to that. We're, yeah. we're, we're In a couple of months, we're going to sit down. We're going to go through some of the high-level stuff so I can let you put out all your opinions on simulation theory, the full singularity opinion, all that, all that good old stuff. And I won't tell you the other stuff I'll throw out there, but I'm very curious to hear you really expand upon some of these things. And definitely, if, if you have time and i don't know that you do but if, if you have some time check that check that book out before yeah. before you come back it's oh, I, I definitely will I, like i was wild. saying that is like you're like i don't know probably the five or the 
fifth or sixth person that said, hey, you got to check this out. Oh, dude, yeah. crazy. But listen, man, what you're doing is impressive is not the right word to even put on it. It's it's pretty incredible. And I really appreciate you coming in. I'm going to go take a look deeper on some of the documents that you shared with me right before this and, and anything else as well. I'd love to just take a look. But yeah. you guys aren't seeing this on this. If you're watching it, you're not seeing the holograms in here. I've seen some of the videos of what this guy does, and it's no bullshit. I mean, it is it is, it is is freaky. So, yeah, I'm, I'm curious to see how Q1 goes here. I think it's going to be pretty good for you. Yeah, yeah I think it's going to be exciting. I it's, think it's uh... going to be good. It's gonna be a whirlwind. I, I know it has been the past uh, past few months have just been nonstop. So, um, looking forward to it. But uh, it right. should be fun, and I'll absolutely come back. Well, February, we'll we'll, we'll have you back in here, and we'll we'll shoot the shit, and, and also see where you're at. But Perfect. For now, Anthony, thanks for coming in, brother. Yeah, I really appreciate a pleasure. it. Pleasure. And everyone else, give it a thought. Get back to me. Peace.